welcome to the Film Geezers Podcast. Hello and welcome once again to the Film Geezers Podcast. I'm Robbo and I'm here with Cheeto. Hello. And today we're going to talk about some of the worst movies ever made. Now, do you think that people actually set out to make a, a bad movie? Uh, sometimes, because there's, yeah. there's, there's um, I think on my list, I've got a few where they did they they thought they were making a really good movie and it turned out really shit. And then there's a few where um, they didn't set out to make a bad movie, but I don't think they necess- necessarily knew it was going to be a good movie. But I don't think they actually set out for it to be a bad movie. But yeah. I reckon there's films out there that they know it's going to be a bad movie, so... Because, you know, people tend, tend to set out with good intentions. Yeah. And then they blame things like, you know, uh, lack of budget, you know, director, mm. acting, you know, some, sometimes a combination of them all. You know, though, I do reckon that sometimes... That maybe it wasn't their first thing to set out to make a bad movie, but a lot of the times bad movies make a shit ton of money still. Cause people, <laughs> want, people want to see... How yeah. bad the movie is, so it can be you. It be, could be a good marketing yeah. tool, but yeah, I don't think anyone goes out, sets out as their like first thing to make yeah. a bad movie. So and quite often um, these sort of bad movies, they they're so bad they're good. Yeah, and they they sometimes and that's why they make money. Pick up a cult following. Yeah. Um, so right, so let's get into it then. So my first film is called Grizzly Two: The Revenge. It's also known as Grizzly 2, The Predator, and Grizzly 2, The Concert. Now, this has been dubbed, although it's only been released in 2020, uh, this has been dubbed the sequel 40 years in the making. It was di- uh, directed by Andre Sotz, whoever the hell that is. <laughs> um, the budget is unknown, really, yeah. and the box office at the moment, as it, it's only on streaming services, is unknown. Mm. But the plot is, it's set in Northern California, Poachers kill a bear cub, the mother goes on a rampage killing hikers, park rangers, and eventually targeting a rock concert. Um, the rock concert really was included just to sell a soundtrack album. Yeah. So that <laughs> tie in there. Jesus. Um, but you look at the you look at the pedigree of the, the actors in it. Uh, you've got Louise Fletcher, who played Nurse Ratchet in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I got an Oscar for that. Mm. John Reese Davis, off the back of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. And then, but then you've also got some uh, first um, performances by some big stars, George Clooney and Laura Dern. Um, I think they were just starting out. And, yeah, they must and, have been. Yeah. And then you had Charlie Sheen. Um, he'd only just been kicked out of high school. Yeah. Um, lost a baseball scholarship, so he was trying to get into acting. And this film would have earned him his Screen Actors Guild card. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that's really why... That's an amazing cast, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah. So The Grizzly 2 actually begins back in 1975 when screenwriters David Sheldon and Harvey Flaxman, they were talking about a camping trip that Flaxman had taken with his family. Mm. Um, And during his camping trip, there was rumours of a bear on the loose which which panicked people. And they both thought it would make a great film idea. Now, this is in the, obviously... Post Jaws, yeah, um, where you have all those kind of rip-off films. You had, yeah, that's that's what happens, isn't it? Yeah, an original film with uh, an original concept comes along, and then it just starts a whole wave yeah. of these different movies. So you had Piranha, you had Orca, yeah, you had 
Grizzly, which was actually billed as Jaws on land, <laughs> or on landlocked Jaws. So they actually wrote a script in a week. Um, and, <laughs> a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was released in 1975. I mean, it was a really, really low-budget film. It was estimated at $750,000, yeah. but it made $30 million. That's amazing, isn't it, really? So, you know, that's obviously going to... They're going to want... A, a sequel, uh, yeah. sequel. So the producer, Edward L. Montaro, approached Sheldon for a sequel. Um, he said yes, but on the condition he could direct. So mm. he actually got to work on a screenplay. Yeah. Unfortunately, Montaro embezzled a million dollars from his own company <laughs> and vanished, <laughs> which it seems to be um, a theme running through the, oh, the film. Yeah, I was not expecting that, I must admit. So this new producer got on board, a guy called Joseph Ford Proctor, who said he'd, he's pedi- he said he'd, he'd worked with Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. Um, and whilst working for Jerry Lee Lewis, there was a few financial irregularities. And um, Lewis actually called him Joseph Fraud Proctor. <laughs> so that's that's not, not a great start. Um You've then got Susan Nagy. She was born in Hungary. She yeah. studied screenwriting and production. Um, after she graduated, she married an American, moved to New York, and she landed a job representing the Hungarian film industry, encouraging producers to film in Hungary. Now, this is 1983, so it's still... Hungary's still a communist country yeah. under Soviet control. Um, but it was a lot cheaper to film in Hungary than it was in the US. Mm. So they were trying to encourage like low-budget films to go and film there. Um, <clears throat> she she met Proctor and they decided to make this film. He pitched this idea to her and they decided to make this film in Hungary. Yeah. Unbeknownst to Sheldon, Proctor secretly installed Andre Sotz. He's actually a Hungarian director as director. And Sheldon didn't learn he'd been replaced until the team began arriving in Hungary without him, basically. So that's how the guy did business. So that's an indication <laughs> of... Snake it out the yeah. So um the first day they got there, they actually they actually um hosted a real rock festival. Yeah. And they shot all that footage there. Um that evening Proctor called Nagy's husband Steve, who'd gone out, he wasn't involved in the film, but he'd gone out with her and told him there was not enough money to finish the film and he was leaving Hungary. So that sent obviously everybody into a bit of a panic. Mm. Um, but amazingly, this is this is again a bizarre thing. An American plastic surgeon who'd visited the set at Proctor's request offered to invest half a million dollars in the film. So oh, again, this, shit, is, yeah. this is one of those kind of bizarre coincidences, mm. I guess. Um, Nick Maley, who'd worked on Star Wars, he actually made a mechanical bear and two other bears. Yeah. <clears throat> But when he got to Hungary, he was told he wasn't allowed to operate them, that they insisted on a Hungarian crew. Jesus. And what happened was they had um, an accident with an exploding blood bag, <laughs> which almost killed John Reese davis Jesus it Christ. severely damaged the bear. Yeah. So that kind of rendered the bear a little bit... So similar to Jaws, the bear just wasn't available mm. for film shooting, so... After 45 days of shooting, they had some concert footage, steady cam footage of the victims screaming and running away, and lots of people talking about a bear, but no bear. Oh, so, because obviously in Jaws, they used the bowels, didn't they? Yeah. So they yeah. used nothing for no. the bear? 
So they had all this footage yeah. of, of, you know, supposedly grizzly, <laughs> but no bear. <laughs> but mainly thought that he'd be able to complete the bear scenes back in the US when the money became available. Okay, yeah. So, so he stored them in a warehouse in Budapest, flew back to the UK, and was promised that his bears would be shipped later. But unfortunately, they were seized by Hungarian officials over unpaid bills. And then they <clears throat> they perished in a warehouse fire. <laughs> yeah, so, was that probably arson? I, I don't know. <laughs> so Nagy travelled to LA to try and raise funds to complete the film, but wasn't able to. And it was due to really the internet, because in the mid-2000s, uh, an unfinished work print of Grizzly 2 began circulating online and among bootleg DVD collectors. Mm. So Nagy worked with editors to create a new movie, now titled Grizzly 2 Revenge. It's trimmed down from the original leaked version, running about 75 minutes. So I think um, the minimum length of a film to be considered a feature is 75 minutes. Okay. Else it's considered like a short, a short film. film, yeah. Now big name draws Clooney, Den and Shin open the story. Even though they were only in it four minutes, they, they played a group of campers who got killed by the bear yeah like i say in and they were on the screen for four minutes but on the poster obviously they're headlining <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the film's now being um released on streaming so that was kind of you, you know you kind of think all those events that happen that has to be one of the most screwed up productions yeah, I've ever exactly, had. You know? but it's odd because that makes me... I want to watch this one. <laughs> we got... What street... Is it like... Just, I'm not sure. I'm I'd not love sure. to go watch it just um, to see... Um, what sort of shit show this is. Because apparently she also... She bought some, um, like, uh, library footage of... Stock footage of bears. Yeah. So I don't know if they've actually edited... <laughs> no, don't tell edit. me they put it in the film. I don't know. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't why I want to watch it. Just to... <laughs> But yeah, if it's a if, if it's a bear film with no bear, or a, or a bear <laughs> film with sort of stock footage of bears, Jesus then, Christ, yeah, um, yeah, it, it's just probably you know it probably should have never got made, no. and they probably should have just called it quits. But you know, fair play to them. Yeah, they, they, you know. they've hung on there. You know? Exactly. So, <clears throat> yeah, go give it to them. Right. Uh, well, my next film is Batman and Robin, and. I don't know why I said next film because it's my first film, but yeah, it's my first film is Batman and Robin. It's a 1997 superhero film based on the DC Comics characters Batman and Robin, obviously. It's the fourth and final instalment of Warner Brothers' initial Batman film series, a sequel to Batman Forever and the only film in the series made without the involvement of Tim Burton in any capacity. Directed by Joel Schumacher and written by Avika Goldsman, whoever the hell that is. It stars George Clooney replacing Val Kilmer as Bruce Wayne, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze, and Chris O'Donnell reprising his roles Dick Grayson, who is Robin, alongside Uma Thurman, Alicia Silverstone, Silverstone, I think that's how you say it, yeah. Michael Goff, Pat Hingle, and L. McPherson. The film follows the titular characters as they attempt to prevent Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy from taking over the world, while at the same time struggling to keep their partnership together. He's also to date the only live-action film appearance of Batgirl, portrayed by Silverstone who helps the title characters fight the villains. Right, Batman was Batman was made on a budget of $160 million, which is a huge budget. I mean, that's a, that's considered <coughs> quite a sizable budget now compared to, yeah. obviously, in the, on the night, in the 90s, you know, but it seems like they went all out for this one, but... That's, that's Clooney coming off the back of Grizzly 2. 
yeah, he's lived off his fame <laughs> off that, you know. And, <laughs> it made $238 million for a total gross of $78 million. And I think, don't let that fool you, because it made a decent bit of money, but of course, Batman's always going to make money, isn't it? It's like Star Wars. A bad Star Wars movie is always going to make money, isn't it? So, um, and really, th- this film was doomed from the start, it, mainly due to Joel Schumacher, um, he was brought in to basically follow Warner Brothers' vision of what they wanted for their next film to be. And they're, of course, infamous for having movies made their own way. You know, like, um, obviously in previous movies we've talked about, like, Superman. Yeah, we've talked yeah, in previous you know. podcasts about, yeah, the um, the interference from the studios in, in that franchise. And, Warner Brothers is yeah. so terrible with it. Um, <clears throat> And how um, a lot of it is to do with the, the merchandising. Yeah. You know, they they pushed that a lot as well. Well, the reason why they fired Tim Burton was because him and the studio didn't have the same vision for the franchise. Of course, ironically, Tim Burton's films are considered hands down the best of the 90s Batman movies. Maybe if Schumacher, Schumacher was given the leverage to make his movie, then it may be held like in this high regard Burton's films are held in, you know? Yeah. Um, the studio told him to make a movie that was kid-friendly and could serve as the hook for lots of product tie-ins, toys, costumes, yeah. etc. And that, like we said, that's what a was, running theme. What was the original Batman rated? Oh, what, um, yeah. Tim Burton's? Yeah. I think it was a uh, 12 over here. Was it? Yeah. It was quite, it was quite a dark film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely doesn't follow the same um, themes of, no. of the films that came after it, but... Yeah, like I said, it is. Let's type to see what it is. Because it, it kind of reverts back to the 60s campy. Yeah, you know, it does. It plays up that. And obviously, they're trying to get like a universal rating or at least a PG. In the United Kingdom, it's a 12. And in the United States, it's a PG 13. So it's All right. it's quite a dark yeah. film compared to, like you said, the, the campy yeah. um, movies that came after it. But yeah, yeah once again, it was due to. To just they want to sell their um, the toys, the costumes, mm-hmm. and once again, like we said before, that's that was the downfall of the other movies, wasn't it? Yeah. Because they were so focused on selling that instead of selling the film itself yeah. and making the most out of the film, and that's what he gave them. Rather than focusing on the plot, writing genuine characters, pacing, and basically everything that you need to make a great film, this film has so much potential due to the villains that were featured in this film: Mister Freeze, Poison Ivy, and Bane. These are all played by huge A-listers. And I think the main thing about this film is the execution. It made a mockery of Batman and his characters because it's almost like um, Batman and Robin. It's almost, it's almost like two different films because mm-hmm. Batman and Robin, they were written as um, really serious. Yeah. But then again, you have the infamous, um, I don't know if you know, the infamous George Clooney bat nipples. Yeah. On, on yeah. the suit. Yeah. And that, that is just made a huge mockery out the character. Uh-huh. But yeah, like they were, Batman and Robin were... were Written in this in this way of of they wouldn't look out of out of place in maybe Burton's because it was quite they were written quite dark right. characters where yeah. the villains they just went overboard. And I know villains tend to you know tend to be a bit over the top. You know if if you look at um for instance the Dark Knight, mm-hmm. Batman is really dark and then the Joker, he's a bit over the top. Yeah. He's a bit Joker, but still he is dark at the same time. But they they just totally in this film the heroes and villains at two different ends of the spectrum. So that's that it wasn't really a good watch. It's probably the most campy film ever made as well. Yeah. And it took eight years for Batman's name to be redeemed. <laughs> Obviously with Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. And I think if 
like literally Christopher Nolan wrote his trilogy because he he had a vision of what Batman was for him and he wanted to redeem Batman and when when you have a film that's so bad that it crushes the reputation of a character so iconic like Batman yeah. you know, it has to be a really shitty movie for yeah. it and so overall it, it put the final nail in the coffin for that era's Batman movies and quite possibly that era's superhero movies as a whole yeah. I mean I know after this film there, there were a decent amount of campy movies like the um, Fantastic Fours but nowadays superhero movies are certainly especially DC movies are, are far beyond from where they were in the 90s, but yeah, that's why it's on my list. It truly is a terrible yeah. watch, but it's once again, it, it, it is one you can put on and just laugh at because it's just that bad. And yeah. that's the thing that bad movies have got for them, isn't it? They're always going to yeah. be like entertaining because you're like, how the fuck do you make a film this bad? You <laughs> yeah. know, so but that, it, it just goes to show that just because you throw money at something, yeah. doesn't it doesn't guarantee success? No, of course not. You know, it's got to have proper character development and proper script, and it's just got to be. Sometimes it's, it's a case of being the right place, at the right time yeah, as well, 100%. isn't it? When, and the right audience. Yeah, because because um, like maybe films nowadays audiences I don't know forty years ago would would hate movies nowadays, vice versa. Yeah. So you know, but yeah, there's those those things that you got to stick to mm -hmm. when making a movie, and and I feel this film misses it certainly yeah. with. The superhero genre as well, so that's why it's on my list. Okay, cool. Right, my next one is Caddyshack Two. And by the way, I didn't even realise there was a Caddyshack Two. So, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was made in 1988. That's actually eight years after the original, mm. and it's directed by Alan Arkush. The budget was 20 million, and the box office was 11.8 million. Oh, so yeah. The plot: um, Kate Hartunian and her father Jack, played by Jackie Mason apply for membership at Bushwood, which is the club from the original movie. Mm. Jack is a self-made millionaire who builds low-income housing in affluent neighbourhoods. So when the current members meet, Jack, his application to join is rejected. The rejection stems from his oafish personality and an earlier confrontation with Bushwood's president, Chandler Youngs, played by Robert Stack, wife. I believe he chased her with a bulldozer or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's the humour. That's the level. <laughs> <laughs> Ty Webb, played by Chevy Chase, returns, this time as the club's majority owner, and while he admires Jack, he prefers to stay out of the way of the club's day-to-day -day operations. In retaliation, Jack buys Bushwood stock from Ty and turns it into an amusement park. So Chandler hires Captain Tom Everett, played by Dan Aykroyd, a shell-shocked mercenary operating out of a lunch wagon to discourage Jack from building any more structures on Bushwood property. And the bumbling Everett decides to use explosive golf balls to do this. Webb suggests that the dispute should be resolved like gentlemen by facing each other in a golf match. If Chandler wins, Jack loses his construction site and the country club, and if Jack wins, he keeps Bushwood and the housing project. So that's basically the plot. Yeah. Um... So, Caddyshack had been Howard Ramis' debut film as a director, and it shows. It's funny, but it's technically it's a mess. But the movie's perfect, despite all, perhaps because of those imperfections. Mm. So, Ramis would later admit that he had no clue what he was doing on Caddyshack, <laughs> and he, he basically referred it to it as his learn-on-the-job $6 million mm. scholarship to film school. Oh, so it literally was his first yeah, feature film? Oh, wow. Yeah. So he went on to direct, but well, actually made $30 million, mm. I think, at the uh, 
or uh, yeah, he went on to direct 1983's National Lampoon's Vacation and write and star in both 1981's Stripes and 1984's Ghostbusters. And he wrote the screenplay for Rodney Dangerfield's biggest box office hit, 1986's Back to School. So, obviously, Rodney Dangerfield was the main character from the first Caddyshack. So they had quite a close (coughs) um, personal relationship. So Warner Brothers, again... (laughs) (laughs) which had distributed Caddyshack, Dangerfield's first major movie, now in the sequel. So Dangerfield had made only $35,000 for the original film. Now he was asking for $7 million, $5 million of which was to be paid in advance to return to Bushwood. Mm. He also wanted a personal sauna bill on the set, which they agreed. Um, they were desperate, really, because they needed a big comedy film for 1988 because they'd, they'd had nothing in production. They yeah. had nothing to, you know, so... That's that's why a lot of films get made because they just need it. Need, they've got a vacuum. They've got they need a film for like the big summer blockbuster. And or that's never a good reason to no. have a movie. Either. No, Chevy Chase wasn't interested until they offered him a lot of money for what is essentially a glorified cameo was Ty Webb, and he's only got five minutes of screen time in Caddyshack too. And I think they paid him pretty similar to what they paid Dangerfield, like seven million for five minutes. Oh wow! Away. So yeah. Um. Bill Murray wasn't interested in playing the unhinged assistant greenskeeper Carl Spackler a second time, and Ted Knight had died in 1986 at 62 from colon cancer. So Ramis didn't want to write the script, but was begged by Dangerfield, who would work on the script with him, because they told him that if he didn't do it, someone else will, and it wouldn't be as good. So he gave in. And that's that's a lot of themes you, you hear as well. It's yeah. like, if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And it's you're basically blackmailed into yeah, it, pretty much, it? yeah. <laughs> so Ramis worked on a first draft in the summer of 1987. Um, a de- director had been hired. Uh, the guy f- who directed Back to School, which was Alan Meta. So Ramis got the script as good as he could get it, but Dangerfield knew that he wouldn't be a, he would be carrying the sequel as opposed to being part of the ensemble. Didn't like what he read, and was getting more and more disenchanted. He asked for rewrites, but didn't like those either. In 1987, less than a month before filming was scheduled to begin, Dangerfield dropped out of the project. Once Dangerfield left, the studio fired Meta and filming was put on a hold indefinitely. The actual Warner Brothers, I think, sued Dangerfield mm. um, and apparently was settled out of court, so I don't know exactly what happened there. No. But according to Ramis, when Rodney pulled out, I said, I'm done. I'd only been doing it because Rodney asked me to, and they said, come on, we'll go see Jackie Mason. And I said, nah, you got, you go see Jackie Mason. I don't think I want to be involved in that. And at some point, I tried to take my name off, and the studio begged me not to. They said, if you take your name off, it will be the big news in Hollywood, and it will kill our first weekend. So I left my name on it. So again, they kind of blackmailed him. Yeah, you know? it's, it's really sketchy about it all is. this. So... The studio replaced Alan Meta with Alan Arkush at the time he was working on the TV show Moonlighting. Um, and he, he signed on not realising that there was no completed script and that Dangerfield or Murray were not returning. So this is this is one of those things that, you know, they try and, they try and replace characters with similar characters, mm. but they're thinly veiled versions of the original. So you've got... Jackie Mason was basically the new Dangerfield. Dan Aykroyd was 
essentially signed on to play a thinly veiled version of, of Bill Murray's character. Robert Stack took on the snob character played by Ted Knight. And although Ty Webb character was the only direct link to the original Caddyshack, um, Terry Chase was more interested in collecting his seven-figure salary than delivering anything resembling a performance. So he just wasn't interested in it. Yeah. Um, and the, the problem is it's, it's impossible to list all of the reasons why Caddyshack 2 doesn't work. Akush believes the chief culprit is that the film ended up as the Jackie Mason show, which he said it was a mistake. Because they went to see Jackie Mason in... Um, he was doing a show in Las Vegas. And they, they went to see him... Um, once and then they spoke to him, signed him, and then they went to see him again. And Arkish had a few doubts because he felt that just Mason had difficulty engaging with the audience mm. or connecting on any kind of meaningful way. And so that's maybe why it failed because audiences just couldn't really connect with him. Um, but he said it certainly doesn't help that none of the other characters are remotely interesting either. The jokes are groaners, and the original's love of golf is nowhere to be found. The movie's idea of comedy is loading the soundtrack with horse fart sound effects and adding more oh, of the damn. golfer. You remember the mechanical golfer? Yeah. Well, now it actually speaks. <laughs> um, and it's an interesting fact that Bill Murray um, actually had some input in the development of the golfer uh, from the first film, and when they used it without his permission in the second film, he sued them. And he actually won some conversation for that. Oh, wow. Yeah. But overall, I mean, Caddyshack 2, uh, it was a critical and commercial failure. Um, and like you said, you've never heard of it. So no. it, it kind of, you know, unless you were from that era, maybe, you would, would never have known no. that they made a sequel. Uh, it's not something that they push. To be fair, though, luckily, in its favour... Where the original is such a classic, it it, yeah. it overshadows that, doesn't yeah. it? So, so you very rarely see it on TV. No, um, well, I didn't realise it was was yeah. a film. You, you, I don't even think I've seen it on any streaming services or anything either. So, yeah, I think it just died a death. Yeah, another hell, um, fueled like filled production again. Yeah. So, yeah, right. My next film is Cats. Right. <laughs> I know you've been dying to... Uh... Yeah, I have, I really have. <laughs> Cats is a 2019 musical fantasy film based on the 1981 Tony Award-winning stage musical of the same name by Andrew Lloyd Webber, which in turn was based on a poetry collection, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats by T.S. Eliot. The film is directed by Tom Hooper, who's a very good, act, very good director, isn't he? He won, um, I think, Best Picture for King's Speech. He was, he? yeah, yeah. yeah. In his second feature of musical following Les Miserables, from a screenplay by Lee Hall and Hooper. The film features an ensemble cast including James Corden, because he gets his fat ass and everything. <laughs> <laughs> he does, though. He does, yeah. Uh, Judy Dench, Jason Derulo, Idris Elba, Jennifer Hudson, Ian McKellen, Taylor Swift, Rebel Wilson, and Francesca Haywood. I don't know how they got that many pe good people on, but there's some shitters in there well, as just, well. Just. Just natural uh, national treasure, Dame Judy Dench. It's enough, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, it seems like they, they looked at like a, a list of like national treasure, like actors or Shakespearean actors. They did put it well, in. Ian McKellen as well. You, you know? got Jane Judy Dench yeah. and Ian McKellen, and then fucking Jason Derulo. <laughs> Jesus Christ! But um, it was made on a budget of ninety-five million dollars, and it made seventy-six million dollars for a total gross of negative nineteen million. 
And although it is estimated to have lost Universal Pictures approximately $140 million <laughs> due to advertising and having a huge cast, etc., which is a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, like Batman and Robin, Cats was doomed from the start. The amount of effort that Universal Studios put into bigging this movie up, it was always going to fall short. They were so confident in the film that they released the film the same week as Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Of course, everyone went to watch Star Wars. This film wasn't even in the mind of most of the general public. One of the most prevalent things that went wrong with this film is the horrible CGI, and it's well-renowned, isn't it? It's infamous, the CGI with this film. Shortly after Cats hit theatres, Universal pulled a stunning move when it announced that the film had to be re-released due to very obvious CGI blunders. Like the generally unsettling look of human faces pasted on digital qu- digital cat bodies, and it is horrendous, isn't it? <laughs> I I haven't seen it, so no, I'm not even. Oh, I couldn't even bring myself to watch it. I don't think I had to force myself to watch this. Uh, I'm telling you, this is what they torture people with in Guantanamo Bay, <laughs> and the shot of a clearly visible wedding ring on the hand of of Judy Dench's cat. This is due to the cats being rushed quickly into theatres, leaving Hooper to finish the original cut just before its premiere. And clearly an impossible, impossibly fast turnaround just wasn't doable. And once again, rush it, rushing it out. And, and the worst thing with a film is to rush. And nine times out, or nine and a half times out of ten, when you rush a film, it's not going to be very good, is it? It's yeah. just how it is. Yeah. And, we, and it's not just film, it's with anything. When you rush it, you're, you're not putting in as much effort. No. At, no. You're, or you're putting in too much effort at places and not in other places, mm-hmm. you know. Another reason is that there literally wasn't any reason for this film to exist, only for money. There's a completely nonsensical plot in which essentially a bunch of singing cats fight over which one of them will get to die at the end, and that is yeah. honestly the plot. Well, it's, it's like when it's like with Disney when they re-release, you know, live-action yeah, versions of... Yeah, Lion King. I don't yes. get that at all. Well, you know, other thing. It's it's just money, money. Because they, they know they can make money yeah. off of it, you know. And I just don't, you know, you'd have been better off rather than trying to CGI stick to the original where they just wear costumes. Yeah, wouldn't you? Really? Because I think I'd be much better as as in it. Obviously, back in the day, that's how they'd probably do it. It's costumes. Yeah. They wouldn't use CGI, and it adds charm to the film yeah. as well. But it's just terrible CGI, yeah. and it's we're talking like. Prequel levels of, of yeah. Star Wars prequel levels of G, uh, CGI, yeah. um, and like I said, literally the plot is a bunch of singing cats fight over which one of them will get to die at the end. That is literally the plot, and literally I can't think of a shittier plot in my life. Like why uh, musicals like for for yeah, but it's, it's based on a, a book and on a stage mm. musical as well. So that is the plot. But it's just so shit. Yeah. Like, even in music, like, <laughs> maybe it's because I, I don't get musicals. Yeah. Uh, maybe obviously with the wrong audience people think films we like but just in my opinion that is just oh, I don't know why you'd want to go watch that um, it seems like they've spent spent all their money on getting the the actors yeah. and, and then they the go CGI oh, as well. oh shit we've run out of money for CGI <laughs> you know yeah, and it's, normally CGI is, is what films spend the most money on is, yeah. is, is the CGI but um I mean, also with the cast that huge and people coming and going every five minutes, like literally people mm-hmm. coming and out of screen because it's such a huge ensemble cast. Yeah. The narrative is lost within that, and it essentially is a huge clusterfuck from the start. And that's mm-hmm. how I can sum it up. <laughs> and don't hold back. <laughs> oh well, no. Well, <laughs> well, to be fair, everyone knows how like, shit this movie is anyway. Yeah. But um, and it's it's odd because like m- most of the, most of the characters like introduced through songs, but some. 
don't appear at all after their song, making them mostly pointless. It's yeah. like it's just little little things like that. It's just mm-hmm. like how do you mess it up that much? And and like I said, I don't think that it is Hooper's fault at all no. about this movie. Like we said, he's a very he's an Oscar winning act, yeah. uh, director and it, and he's well renowned. But just sometimes things don't go go right, and and obviously Cats is an example of it. Um, and just one more thing is is even with this huge ensemble cast. It's probably Judy Dench's and Ian McKellen's worst mm. acting, and James Corden. He, he's he's probably only got signed up to it for the buffet, so he's probably on that. You know, <laughs> he's a shit actor. So yeah, all right. that's all. That's all I have to say. Yeah, um, he's quite corny. Um, its main antagonist is portrayed by a very genetic, generic, and major downgrade from the original musical. Uh, the villain is not good at all. Yeah. Um, the, the size of the character is inconsistent and some scenes are actually quite disturbing, <laughs> especially the one with an anthropomorphic cockroach scene where one of the cat characters eats a cockroach from under a table. So, oh, nice. yes. And the, the, they, these are some of the many reasons why this film is an absolute shit yeah. show. So, yeah. I don't, know, I don't know how anyone would want to go watch it after what I've just said, but... <laughs> Well, you haven't sold it to me. I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you know, it could be it could be Shawshank, and if it had James Corden, then you wouldn't see it. Yeah, so. <laughs> okay, thanks for that. <laughs> right, move on, moving swiftly along. Um, my my next film is probably actually probably one of your favourites, Jaws: The Revenge. Hey, I like this film, <laughs> and I'm going to defend that to the die. Come at seven. <laughs> it's directed by Joseph Sargent. It, Budget was twenty three million. Yeah, uh, box office was fifty one point nine million. So it actually made you know a little bit of money. Yeah, probably twice actually what what it cost. But it's just not a good film. No, <laughs> and it's one of those films that probably killed any sequel. Yeah. Um. So the plot, <coughs> if there is one, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's actually a direct sequel to Jaws two. So it ignores the events of Jaws three D. And is the fourth and final instalment in the Jaws franchise. So in Amityville, Sean Brody, which is uh, Chief Brody's youngest son, is now grown up. Mm. He's a deputy sheriff, and he's killed by a great white shark. Uh, Chief Brody's actually uh, died. He's had a heart attack. Um, to get over the, the death of her son, Ellen Brody, travels to the Bahamas to spend Christmas with her other son, Michael, one's guest, and his family, and... Michael's now a marine biologist. Last guest is it? I didn't realise yeah. I was last guest because he's in um, Halloween 2. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realise I was last yeah. guest. What? Oh, oh. Yeah. Um, so when a great white shark shows up, Ellen is convinced it's followed her from Amity and is seeking revenge on her family. How can you not like that as a plot? No, but I, I t- <laughs> All right. So we, we, we're going to go into what went wrong. <laughs> Be prepared yeah. for Shakespeare's works. Well, right. You you look at it on the surface, right? It's got a decent pedigree. Yeah. It's it's a product of a major Hollywood studio, Universal. Mm. The budget was good, which was like um, twenty three million. So that's a decent budget yeah. back then. The director Joseph Sargent, he, he was far from a hack. He was a veteran of TV and film. He'd previously made the classic thriller, The Taking of Pelham One Two Three. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a decent, very film. good movie. Yeah. The cast, though, not exactly star study, was perfectly respectable. And Kane's career seemed to be back on the front foot again towards the end of the 80s, thanks to his performance in Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters. So what happened is 
the autumn of 1986, Universal's chief executive, Sid Scheinberg, called Joseph Sargent wanting a Jaws sequel. Um, Sargent thought taking a Jaws sequel hardly seemed like a wise career move, but Sargent told him that Universal wanted a film of the calibre of the first movie, so he thought, yeah, and it's going to be a decent film. Yeah. So, and Scheinberg pledged to give Sargent plenty of creative freedom, uh, making him... Uh, one of the sequel's producers as well as director, and then allowing him carte blanche to assemble the creative team he wanted. The freedom did come with a catch, however. Scheinberg wanted the film ready for the summer of 1987, which is, you know, quite a short production. Yeah. Even if Sargent had begun shooting that very day with the completed script and the hand-picked cast, he still have less than a year to film and edit the movie. So pre- I think the first Jaws film, although it, it was went over... Um, it went over uh, schedule. That, yeah, uh, it still took like eighteen months to two years mm. to to complete before it was released. So that is uh, that's that a is, long time, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, nine nine months to to actually complete a film. That is long. So anyway, he um, he began working on the script, um, and he wanted Sheriff Brody back. So his idea was the film would open almost a decade on from the last time they saw him in Jaws 2. It's Christmas in Amity Island, and Brody's out in his police boat on a routine patrol when something shocking happens. A great white shark comes lunging out of the water, and in a splash of foamy seawater and blood, Brody's killed. So that was going to be the jumping-off point for a new saga, in which Brody's now-widowed wife, Ellen, becomes convinced that her family's being targeted by a shark with vengeance on his mind. Um, Lorraine Gary had pretty much given up acting, but she was eager to return to Jaws, playing the central strong female character. Now, there's some, <coughs> there's there, there's been some sort of rumours about um, nepotism because Sid Scheinberg was actually married to Lorraine Gary. Oh yeah. Um, and, oh yeah. Yes, yeah, and it's kind of that like he, he concocted this because obviously after Jaws, I think she'd only ever she'd only did one more film. I think it was 1941 for Spielberg. Mm. And that was pretty much it. So you know, it seems like he's concocted this fishy, film. Yeah, as a, yeah, fishy. <laughs> <laughs> I do you mean that? No, I'm no. Um, but some people say as well because of I think Aliens came out around the same time. Yeah, and so there was kind of an appetite for that strong female-led um, action film. So that could have been another reason for it. Yeah, maybe as well. Um, she is. She's mainly the, the main character. Yeah, she is, yeah. So Rand's guest signed on as Michael, Mario Van Peebles as Jake, and lastly Michael Caine, who was attracted by the $1.5 million payday <laughs> and a week in the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was good. Uh, two notable exceptions were Roy Scheider and Richard Dreyfus, who both turned down the tiny roles written for them in the screenplay. Dreyfus would, would have literally phoned in his performance in, in since the script required him to call Ellen Brody and offer his condolences for her husband's death. Scheider had become bored with shark hunting and less than thrilled at being killed off early, rejected Universal's offer. Um, he only made Jaws 2 because he was con- contractually obliged to, to do it. Also, when he, when he put pen to paper for yeah. Jaws 1, he had to yeah. do it. To, oh, wow. I think they... They sometimes have clauses that if it's if it's successful, yeah. then you have to sign Come back, sequel. do another one, yeah. So the, um, the screenplay was rewritten to have Ellen's son, Sean, killed by the shark in the story's opening. 
Shida's chief Brody, the script now said, had died of a heart attack, or his wife puts it in the movie, he died from fear from having to go out there after it. <laughs> Who wrote this? A hobo on the street. <laughs> <laughs> so, filming began in February 1987, mere weeks after the first draft of the screenplay was finished. And they were due to open in summer 87. Yeah. So, you know, they were pushing it, really. Um, the opening scenes on Amity Island again shot in Martha's Vineyard were completed in just seven days before the production relocated to Nassau in the Bahamas for a further 38 days on February the 9th. A collection of fake sharks were shipped over from the US. The sharks were built during Revenge's hasty pre-production period, which explains why they look less than convincing in the finished film and why they kept breaking down during the shoot itself. So they had still, still had problems with the sharks. Yeah. But this time, because of the time constraints... They were nowhere near as convincing as the original shark. Um, time was so short during filming that actors found himself working seven days a week. Now, during filming, Kane found out he'd been nominated for an Oscar for Anna and her sisters, yeah. and he wasn't even allowed to go and to go to the ceremony oh, to wow. pick up his Oscar um, because of the, the time constraints. It's mental, yeah. isn't it? So, initial photography finished in May 1987 with many of the aquatic scenes shot in a tank on the Universal lot. The special effects photography, however, con continued in the Bahamas right up until June the 4th, leaving less than six weeks to get the movie edited into theatres. George's Revenge made its deadline and surfaced in American theatres on the 17th of July, 1987. Critical notices were even more hostile than they were for Jaws 3D, but audiences were heading to the cinema at a steady but hardly remarkable rate. There's growing concern, however, at the response to the ending. Do you remember the ending there? No. It was the, it. It was the. Remember, it was with the plane, wasn't it? No, it was. It's um, <clears throat> the the original ending um, was Mario Van Peebles' character Jake is killed by the shark. Yeah. And Ellen Brody runs the boat into the shark, and the the prow of the boat harpoons the shark. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That? Um, so, but it was too late to do much for the film's US release but Sid Scheinberg had planned shoot a new ending for Revenge's role overseas so that's probably the one that we've seen is the, yeah. the alternate ending so a team was therefore scrambled back to the Universal backlot to shoot a new conclusion in which Van Peebles is mauled but not killed while the sharp abruptly explodes after his side is pierced by the prow of <laughs> I think I've bow. I'm pretty sure I've seen both <laughs> <laughs> so in the months and years following Revenge's release, the growing consensus was that the shark wasn't terrifying at all, and the things that he did were spectacular in all the wrong ways. <laughs> Roaring like a lion. <laughs> um, swimming over a thousand miles in, a, in mere days. <laughs> well, I, I actually researched this. Uh, Martha's Vineyard to Nassau's 1,100 miles, yeah. and on average, sharks swim about 50 miles a day. <laughs> What the fuck is it? A jet? A jet? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Revenge is, is really a textbook example of a movie going horribly wrong. A cast and crew reeled in by healthy paychecks and creative freedom. A studio so hungry for a hit that it's willing to throw millions at a project and hope that will make up for the absurd lack of planning. The result is one of the most shambolic, hilariously inept movies ever to have emerged <laughs> from a major studio, film studio. I mean, you look at its, its budget placed it in the company of some of the biggest movies in 1987, such as Beverly Hills Cop 2 and The Untouchables. Yeah. 
yet revenge made a fraction of the returns those hits enjoyed. Scheinberg remained upbeat about the chances of making Jaws 5, but the franchise ultimately sank never to resurface. And this is a quote from Michael Caine. I won an Oscar, paid for a house, and had a great holiday. Not bad for a flop movie. <laughs> it's an English thing going Yeah, and he claims to have never seen the film either. So, yeah, I think it's just... They knew that they were going to have a tough time to deliver a movie of the calibre of Jaws in such a short time. Yeah, it's, it's and, impossible. And just, you know, you, you kind of you think, well, I'm in it, so I might as well. I've already spent some money, so I might as well throw more money at yeah. it, and it just doesn't work. I like this yeah. film, though, just because how... It is a cheesy film. Yeah, um, but it's entertaining, though, isn't yeah. it? And it's got Michael <laughs> Caine in it as well, so... So, there you yeah, go. Yeah, like I said, it, it was... It's, it was Basically set up to fail. Yeah, all, all the things. All the it was a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Basically, yeah. but I like this film. So, like I said, I'll defend <laughs> that to the day I die. But, well, any suspicious package that show up, I'm not going to open. Lakes of Anthrax, as I mean. But yeah, um, my next film is Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight: Jason Takes Manhattan. And now, as we know, an eighth film in a franchise can never be good, can it? And no, I mean. <laughs> What's what's the maximum you reckon is is gonna be? Because um, generally sequels are always not as good. Don't no. make as much money as, as the originals. Tend not to have a bigger budget than because tend budgets tend to go down by yeah. sequel, don't they? So um, four maybe five. Wait, what? What do you mean? What how number of sequels to a film? What's the maximum you think well, you this, should? Well, normally, normally what happens is a movie. Um, the first one tends to be really good that's if it creates a second sequel yeah. tends to have a decent bit of money if it's not that much money then it normally gets bumped up for the money for the second one and then that's either sets up a, a trilogy or whatever and then normally each film after that is a low and lower budget yeah. and I'd if I was a filmmaker I'd keep my sequel I'd keep my sequels to two so there'd be a trilogy and I think that's res- yeah. that's respectable so you get one two three then straight to DVD after yeah, that it's, <laughs> I mean actually in in the Friday the 13th series the best films in the series are considered as number four and number six oh, right. um, so that's really weird and they I've, I've I'm a huge Friday the 13th fan or I used to be I used to watch these movies all the time and I've watched them and they are the fourth and the sixth for the best ones but then they, they were basically making them because they knew Jason Voorhees was going to make him money. That's how it is. Yeah. And that's how it is with yeah. slasher films. Because slasher, slasher fans are so crazy about their genre that they'll go pay money to see any, mm-hmm. any old shit. So, but yeah, I'd, 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 stick it, I'd stick it to three, I think. That's how you make it successful. Yeah. So, yeah. right. So it's a uh, Jason Takes Manhattan is a 1989 slasher film written and directed by Rob Hedden and starring the A list cast. Jensen Dagger, Scott Reeves, Peter Mark Richmond, and, and most notably Kane Hodder as Jason Voorhees, reprising his role from Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood. By the way, I say that ironically, because who the fuck is this cast? You know what I mean? It's yeah, like they yeah. just randomly got some yeah. random people off the streets. Is the eighth instalment in the Friday the 13th franchise, set several years after The New Blood. The film follows Jason as he stalks a group of high school graduates on a ship en route to New York City. It was the final film in the series to be distributed by Paramount Pictures in the United States until 2009, with the subsequent instalments being distributed by New Line Cinema. Have you ever seen this movie? 
No. Good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've maybe seen two of them, and then you just kind of think, well, they're rehashing. They're the same film over yeah, and over again. Like I said, much. when I was maybe 12, 13, and I didn't know what a good movie was, I used to love these movies over <laughs> and over again, but... I haven't watched them in years because, yeah, they're not... <laughs> I've actually seen through through the mask and they're not good. Um, Jason Dake's Manhattan was made in a budget of $5 million and it made $14 million, which, you know, was all right. It still made money for a total gross of $9 million. Like I said, they're always going to make money because it's Jason Voorhees, but unlike the two prior films, Jason Takes Manhattan, when first talked about, had a lot going for it. It wasn't doomed from the start. The original script talked of Jason wreaking havoc upon New York with him going all around the city. We would see Jason chase his victims through Madison Square Garden, a whole act filmed in Times Square. A bit of the movie actually was, took place in Times Square, albeit less than five minutes, and many other famous New York landmarks. So, yeah, it, it, would, it would show all of New York, him actually you know, wreaking havoc yeah. on New York, because when you say Jason takes Manhattan, yeah. that means you're going to take Manhattan, mm-hmm. yeah, but... Yeah. Um, it seemed like Paramount was going out with a bang as after this film they'd go on to sell the rights to the franchise to New Line Cinema, of course the creators behind the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Unfortunately, due to a minuscule budget, this film isn't Jason Takes Manhattan. Instead, it's well known to be called Jason Takes a Boat to, to a British Columbian port pretended to be New York. That's right, they filmed most of the New York scenes <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> of course, with the budget they had, they couldn't film in all of the previous planned places just due to the fact that they had no money. Yeah. Um, three quarters of this film, and I'm not even joking, is a, is on a boat going towards New York. The whole boat scenes are just filler to eventually get to the final destination. So, film starts off, it introduces the characters really poorly. You don't get any background, no, no character development. And I'd say an hour of this film is set, is on the boat. And it's just people's day-to-day on a boat. Like how... Mm-hmm. How um, good can you make that? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's yeah, absolute it's, crap. Yeah. You know? um, poor writing, poor characters, poor acting and no action led to the boat scenes being some of the worst in cinema. And like I said, on a boat, where can you go with it? Unless unless you've got... Because this is the thing, the boat, they, it's not like they set out to write the script about what goes yeah. on the boat. It's on New York. Um, and yeah, all, it's sad to think with a big enough budget what this film could have been. Because like I said, they really... Paramount... They were promised, the people behind this were promised a big budget to go out with a bang. And then Paramount would greatly reduce the, the budget this film had. So they had to rewrite everything to yeah. fit it in. And with that, you're never going to, you can't, it's impossible, isn't it, to yeah, make a good film? Yeah, definitely. And I know slashes aren't that highly regarded. There's very few that are <coughs> very, yeah. you know, considered classics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was the recipe of disaster because. <laughs> Literally, there's scenes of people going to bed. There's people. There's scenes of people going to a dance, dancing. Uh, people looking over the harbour or whatever. Yeah. Uh, filler. Yeah. yeah. Uh, people die on the boat, of course. Yeah. Jason goes around, kills them on the because <laughs> this bit I didn't add in. The film starts off in Camp Crystal Lake, where obviously yeah, Jason yeah. resides, and yeah. he kills two people. Right. And he drove. He steals their boat. And he drives the boat to this bigger boat on the cruise ship. So he takes the cruise ship. <laughs> yeah. And he starts killing people on there. And then they, halfway through the voyage, Jason causes the, the boat, the, the cruise, the massive cruise ship to get flooded. And then they have to go on a little dinghy thing, the survivors, and they somehow row themselves to New York. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> so you, okay. you literally, I was, when I was first watching this, I was like, 
okay, Jason takes Manhattan. It's going to be exciting. Yeah. And it's about one minute, uh, one hour 10. And I'm like, oh my God, they're not even at New York yet. <laughs> and like I said, the only bit of New York they actually filmed was, was in Times Square. And it was in Times Square. Yeah. And it's a very famous shot of the, um, I don't know what you call it, the the, the huge skyscraper. Yeah. Lord, adv- yeah. And it's Jason just looking around. But they must have spent most of their budget on that. Because the rest of it is, is, is a cast for a nobody. There's no notable yeah. people in this film whatsoever. No cameos. And like I said, the only... Unless they filmed it guerrilla style, huh? Unless they filmed it guerrilla style, <laughs> not paying, yeah, not paying for a, yeah, filming, yeah, permission and everything, yeah. They might well have done, yeah. but um, but yeah, this, really, this film had nothing going for it. And the only reason why, because Kane Hodder is a very respectable, very famous stunt yeah. actor. Right. You know, he, he acts, but he does his own stunts as well. And the only reason why he came back to do this film is because he loves the Captain Jason, because he's a Friday Thirteenth mega fan. <clears throat> so yeah, he really had. All negatives, no positives really. But once again, when you get to the New York bit, it does pick up a bit. But most of the New York setting is literally in a port, right? A, 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 an yeah. abandoned port where they, obviously it's British Columbia weather, and it's yeah. like it doesn't look American at all, really. So the thing is, they 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 because obviously to save money, yeah. For some for some reason, it's cheaper to film in Canada. They have actually filmed. You know, Canada has doubled for oh, yeah. like New York, mm. so that if they wanted to, they could have done. But this doesn't look like New York at no. all. It's, um, for one, does Manhattan, ha- it, it, Manhattan, ha- I know it has a port, but on the port you can see all like the skyline yeah. in the background. It's yeah. very close. Where this is just a barren um, port of sorts, you know? So it's just, just it's really sad because this film could have been really good. It, it had everything going for it. If it had that original mm. script, you know, going to Manchester yeah. Garden or whatever, but yeah, it's just one of those what ifs, but, like I said, they, they then sold the rights of it to a new line, so good riddance to it. So, <laughs> Right, okay. So, my next one, um, got to get it out of the way. Highlander 2, the cutting <laughs> in. 1991. Um, it's directed by the original director, Russell Mulcahy. Mm. Uh, the budget was $34 million and the box office was $15.6 million. I remember seeing this in... In cinemas, but I think I must have just blacked it out. I must have just, yeah. Um, set in the year 2024, the plot concerns Connor McLeod, the Highlander, that after regaining his youth and immortal abilities, he must free Earth from the shield, which is an artificial ozone that has fallen under the control of the corrupt corporation. So this is kind of like future. This this obviously was all around um, the, the sort of eco uh, at the time was like the old the biggest worry was the ozone line the hole yeah. in that so what they did in future is they built like an artificial shield around the earth to protect them from uh, the hole in the ozone layer but the, the problem is it didn't have an off switch <laughs> and obviously the it's it's um it's come under the control of a corrupt corporation of course so he has to free because uh, i think in the end it's a bit like it's a bit like uh, Total Recall, where okay, yeah. the actual it turns out that the ozone's repaired itself, and it's they don't need the shield anymore. Mm. But the corporations are keeping it there because they get paid for it or something. Yeah, stupid like that. But yeah, go and see it. <laughs> Do I take that one pinch of salt? <laughs> <laughs> so what went wrong? Well, not wanting like a little thing like not having any mortals or having one of your main poster characters being dead get in the way of a good story. <laughs> <laughs> You're really selling this yeah. film. 
Harold and Two almost immediately goes back over every plot point of the film. The immortals, it turns out, were never immortals, but in fact aliens. <laughs> Sean Connery can resurrect himself, ironically making him more immortal than he was when he was actually immortal. <laughs> and the Highlander wasn't actually from the Highlands, but instead from another planet. Jesus. But he's smoking yeah. my ass <laughs> no. It also retcons the prize to a choice between dying slowly or being executed. Also, all that bit about McLeod and first meeting Ramirez, learning his true nature and all the character development, retcon. Turns out they already had some sort of weird civil partnership thing going on. Using magic space, honey. Also, McLeod was the head of the Immortals. Sorry, the Zeistians. Mm. There's a scene where actually um, Connery kisses um, McLeod and says he's my husband. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, it is. Wait, what? Yeah. What in this film? Yeah. What yeah. the hell? Like I say, nothing in this film makes any sense at all. Characters magically know everything about everyone. Scenes jump from one to the next with no continuity, and everybody looks bored. Sean Connery, in particular, is an autopilot. How long, how long is Sean Connery in this film? Um, he's in it most of the film. I is think. he? Yeah, oh. I, guess I can remember. Yeah. So much so, the director Russell Mulcahy requested his name be taken off the film and he walked out the premiere after 15 minutes. Christopher Lambert threatened to do the same. The problem is they chose to film in Argentina and everyone was held to ransom when Argentina's economy tanked and hyperinflation began to roll the potential profits. So what happens? Insurance companies seized control of the film, got the lawyers to threaten everyone with legal action if they ever badmouthed the film. Mm. They then took control of edited it. <laughs> oh, God. Ended up with a film so bad, everyone involved disowned it. <laughs> so is it considered an Argentine production then? No, it's, it's they just filmed it in Argentina, and when the Argentina's economy just went, but like, didn't you say they edited, edited it as well? No, but the insurance company that obviously every every film has yeah. they insure their film against any problems. The insurance company took over, and they essentially finished it themselves. The film. Yeah. yeah, and but just you know. Obviously, the first you've got massive plot holes, and they just go back and they go, ah, "Well, actually, yeah." Um, although immortals can be killed, they can also resurrect themselves, and you know, it's... I think I'll tell you what. That's that's in my opinion, that is the worst thing a film can do yeah. or a sequel can do is a much more superior film is try and like basically explain away. Yeah all of what the, the well, last like one was. In Highlander, Connery turns up and he, he lays out, these are the rules of being an immortal yeah. and that just goes over them. Yeah. And Obviously, they showed, they probably were so short-sighted they didn't even think about a sequel and how that might affect it. And they're going, oh, shit, we need to get Connery back, so how can we manufacture a way that he's not dead anymore? Um, and then this whole thing about aliens and just... It just yeah. is... There's so many yeah. different... I know it's easy for us to say, but there was, yeah. there's surely much better ways you can write yeah. that in. But, yeah, once again, it just but seems like it's one of those doomed films. Incredibly, they had Highlander 3. Yeah. Was was Sean Connery in that one? No. Okay. And a TV series. Oh, my God. And it's it's fun fun fact is that none of the Highlander films actually made a profit. They all bombed <laughs> at the box office. I love... I didn't get a TV show then. <laughs> Christ knows, I don't know. What idiot at, like... I do not know. It just... Yeah, so I just want to get. I just want to go have a shower now. <laughs> shower and acid, yeah. <laughs> right, 
Uh, my next film is just terrible, and it's Daylight. And uh, Daylight is a 1996 American action thriller, apparently, disaster film, directed by Rob Cohen and starring Sylvester Stallone, Amy Brennan, whoever the hell that is, Viggo Mortensen, huh? Dan yeah. Hedaya, Stan Shaw, J.O. Sanders, Karen Young, and Danielle Harris. Daylight was one, was made on a budget of $90 million, which is huge yeah. as well. It made $159 million for a total gross of $69 million. Right, this is more of a personal opinion, because I watched this film recently, I think within the last like two months or something, and I couldn't do it all in one go. Uh, I had to stop halfway through and then force myself the next day to watch the rest. Uh, this is well and truly bad, because I am a huge Sylvester Stallone fan. I love basically all of his movies. Not this one, though. This film takes place in a tunnel. It involves people sitting around doing nothing. Something happens for like five minutes. Then it resorts back to people doing nothing. It is honestly one of the worst paced movies I've ever watched. Pair this with a cast of actors that can't act, with of course the only exception being Stallone, even though this film isn't one of his best. And it says it stars Viggo Mortensen. He's on, he's on one of the posters and he's like second credited. He's in this film for about three minutes. He dies. <laughs> because <laughs> he he basically is this like hot shot so have you ever watched the film no I haven't so no. um, I'll explain it and then I'll explain the plot oh, so okay. the plot didn't excite me as they cheaply tried to add stakes I really couldn't care especially at the end when they made it seem like our main characters were going to die I had a straight face the whole time so yeah don't watch this film or watch this film if you want to torture yourself for an hour and a half but so, so basically I have to go back through and it's bringing back feelings of depression PTSD. <laughs> right so basically people get trapped in this tunnel and there's this huge explosion it's like an oil tanker like goes up in flames causes this massive explosion one of the tunnel closes the other end of the tunnel closes as well and the people that are left that aren't dead are are cast and then Sylvester Stallone was um he was just like disgrace it was the cliche disgraced guy going back into work he was a firefighter and he was the chief <laughs> And um, it basically, Vio Mortensen is like this big shot um, suit, basically. And, and he gets trapped in and he's, he's like an established climber, climber right. some, for some reason. And he's like, I can, climb, I can climb my way out of here. And the movie goes on. And every now and then the movie goes back to hit what he's doing. Right. And it's just him climbing. And then... Uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone comes and he's like no you don't do that there's another way out like you, ca you yeah. can't do this you're going to die because even though he's a former chief of of, of the fire department yeah. he doesn't listen to him so he just leaves him Sylvester Stallone's like no please don't do it please you're going to die Vigo Mortensen's like no and he's like okay and he leaves and so Vigo Mortensen's on his own and of course it starts collapsing yeah. and he gets down to the bottom it's, it's like a Jurassic Park yeah. tree scene oh, so okay, like, yeah. he gets yeah. down and like he lands on the floor, he looks up, and it's just falling, and he doesn't even move, and he just dies. And I tell you, that is basically how shit this movie is throughout the whole film. Um, it's got really annoying characters, um, and it, I hate those scenes. Do you know those scenes where it's like um, it shows together, and it's like yeah, yeah. 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 So so there's a scene where like um, these convicts are trapped in this bus because there's a police comp. There's like um, yeah. a transfer yeah. bus yeah. and there's this like uh, electric pole hanging down and it's like uh, it's basically 
it's, it's a scene out of a shitty game that you got to get past. Right. So the pole's like swinging in front of the bus and this girl, random girl, has to like go and stop it and she's like holding holding the, the electrical wire. Yeah. You know, kill her. And then she like saves the day apparently and it's like they escape and they're all like together and stuff. And it's just such a shit film. And it try, like I said, it tries to add stakes by killing off, yeah. kills off this police officer. I couldn't give a fuck about who he is. You know what I mean? It kills yeah. off Vigo Mortensen. I couldn't care who he is. You yeah. Know? And it's just cheap. It's like it's like they've gone, they've had a test screening and they've gone back and be like, okay, we need to add this or that. You know. That's the problem then when you've got characters that are, you've got to invest. You've got to be in, in a in a film like that. You've got to be invested in the characters. It's about the characters. You've got like yeah. likable characters. Yeah. I mean, you get some characters who aren't likable, but you do like them anyway. Yeah. But well, you've got to care about what happens to them, else you just think, yeah, I don't care. Well, you can... There was this character, and he's um he's one of the convicts, and he's just a dick for being a dick. Yeah. Like, there's no explanation of why. And like you said, when there's, when it's a film about the character, when it's a... Because it's not a story-driven film, it's a character-driven film, isn't it? Because yeah. we're based on the characters. Yeah. And when, in a character-driven film, the worst thing you can do is not have good characters, and no. they're just not good characters, and they, there's no chemistry whatsoever. Um, like I said, it's really bad acting, and... At the end, they do that thing where, oh, is, still, is Sylvester Stallone going to die or not? Yeah. You know, and of course he's not going to die, is he? Um, and yeah, just he, let me guess, he redeems himself at the end. Yeah, by he does. Doing... Yep, he sacrifices himself, but <laughs> then he survives. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> how the fuck does that work? Like, it would have been better to kill him, like yeah. sacrifice yeah. himself, because then it, it adds a story to like whatever. Then he saves himself. So you're like, what the fuck? But yeah, once again, it's never, it's never a movie where Stallone just doesn't look interested. Um, he has. In some films, because this is the thing, he's a huge movie star. I love him, but obviously he's not doesn't have the acting pedigree of say Gary Oldman or whatever, yeah, does he? Yeah. And that whole that, he has that just that stale face the whole time, and he doesn't really doesn't really care. So you can see that throughout. And yeah, it's just a shit show of film, really. And like yeah. I said, I I love films. Of course, we both love films, but yeah. I very rarely have to stop halfway through, and I did for this film, and I had to force <laughs> myself to watch it again the second half. So. Yeah. Yeah, watch this film if you want to know how to not watch a, uh, make a film. So, yep. All right, quite good. <laughs> <laughs> so, my next film is Superman for The Quest for Peace. Holy Jesus. Directed by Sidney J. Fury. Uh, it was budget was 17 million and the box office was 36.7 million. Now, we have kind of discussed Superman in previous um a podcast mm. but we haven't gone that but, yeah. deep into it have we so the plot so seeing the United States and the Soviet Union engaged in a nuclear arms race that could lead to Earth's destruction Superman once again played by Christopher Reeve decides that he must take action he collects all the nuclear warheads from the world and throws them into space meanwhile Superman's nemesis Lex Luthor again played by Gene Hackman mm. has broken out of prison with a new scheme he clones Superman with radioactive material to create nuclear man Played by Mark Pillow, a being just as powerful as a man of steel. So, what went wrong? So, we have to go back in time to 1983. The Superman franchise was in full swing. Both Superman, directed by Richard Donner, and Superman 2, directed by Richard Lester, were huge financial successes. So, a third film was inevitable. With Lester again directing, the returning Christopher Reeve alongside legendary comedian Richard Pryor. Now, he'd actually made a joke on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson at the time, saying how he'd love to be in a Superman film. So the producers, Alex and Lilia Salkin, took him at his word and cast him as... Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> cast him as computer nerd Gus Gorman, who would help Superman defeat villain Ross Webster, Robert Vaughn. 
While Superman 3 was a success, it was lacking the magic of the first two in both tone and quality due in part to the smaller budget. The Selkins then turned their attention to 1984 Supergirl, but once more couldn't recapture the magic of the first films and their spin-off flopped, so they sold the film franchise to Canon Films. Canon Films was run by Israeli cousins Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus, and they were trying to break out of their production assembly line methods. So what they do is they make cheap films and sell them, sell them to foreign distributors for profit. So they wanted, they wanted essentially to break into the Hollywood big time by releasing you know, bigger and more respectable films. Mm. So as well as buying the rights of Superman, Canon had optioned the rights for the massively successful Mass of the Universe toy line and cartoon series from Mattel and paid upwards of $15 million to Sylvester Stallone to star in two big action films, Cobra and Over the Top. So have you seen Yeah, I've, yeah. I've not seen them, but I know what they yeah. are. So on paper, at least, 1987 was the year that Canon was going to make it big with the possibilities both in terms of box office and gaining respect as a company. If Masters and Superman delivered on Canon's sizable investment, the sky was the limit. So, <laughs> was that a pun, was it? I don't know, yeah. So they convinced Christopher Reeve to return once more as the Man of Steel by promising him two things, that he could be involved with the story script phase of the fourth film, which led to Superman planning to rid the world of nuclear weapons. So that was his kind of story idea. Mm. And that Canon would finance his pet project, Street Smart, um, which was at a budget of $6 million, uh, which grossed just over a million. So they actually lost $5 million on that. Wow. So, and obviously with Reeves' involvement, Gene Hackman and Margot Kidder, Mark McClure, Jackie Cooper all joined the cast, while Sidney J. Fury, who uh, directed The Ipcrest File and Lady Sings the Blues, was hired to direct the film. So it was a decent director. And they had a lot of the main, main yeah, cast still back. Definitely. But as production on Superman 4 began, Canada started to run into financial difficulties, losing around $90 million between 1985 and 1986. They had to make cutbacks, originally budgeted it around $30 million, cut to $17 million, with all aspects of the production, from visual effects to locations, being altered. You're not going to believe this, because they actually shot in Milton Keynes, which <laughs> doubled for <Jeez>. New York. <laughs> How the fuck does that double for New York? And Hertfordshire doubling for uh, Smallville. And that was just to keep the budget down. Jesus yeah. Christ. So, <laughs> Canon Films had nearly 30 projects in the works at the time and, and Superman 4 received no special consideration. So they they were trying to make it in the big time, uh, but they just took on too many projects. Um, mm. And obviously losing money, they had to cut the slash the budgets of all the projects that they were working on. And Superman was the one that came off worst. Yeah. Um, so for an example... Connor and Rosenthal wrote a scene in which Superman lands on 42nd Street and walks down the double yellow lines to the United Nations where he gives a speech. If that had been a scene in Superman 1, we would have actually had it shot in 42nd Street. Richard Donner would have choreographed hundreds of pedestrians, but instead we had to shoot an industrial park in England in the rain with about 100 extras, not a car in sight, and a dozen pigeons thrown in for atmosphere. <laughs> so... I mean that's that's you know like you say with um, with uh, Jason um, yeah you know just cutting cutting costs you know yeah it just 
cannot only no. it can only do bad for yeah. your film. So they would put out shots, then duplicate them, and it's everything that happens when you don't have enough money to finish these special effects. So released on July the 24th, 1987 in the US, Superman 4 opened at number four at the box office. By its second weekend, the film had plummeted to number seven, suffering a 49% drop in revenue. By week three, the film had vanished to 19th, finishing its US run on 15 uh, million, $15.5 the lowest of the franchise by a considerable margin. Now, there was talk of Canon Films starting pre-production on Superman 5, something that we've discussed in a previous yeah. podcast, possibly with Reeve himself directing. But under the weight of financial problems, the company of the future <laughs> had none. And in March 1989, Cousins, Golan and Globus parted company. So, yeah, it's... <clears throat> it's again another shit show. Well, I think the Selkins realised that Superman had kind of run its natural course and there was yeah. nothing to... Because they, they also produced a, a, a Superboy TV show that didn't do well. Mm. And so they decided, oh, we'll get out, we'll sell the franchise, you know, back to Canon. And Canon are no, no, notorious for making, you know, low-budget films. Yeah. Um, and just trying to punch above their weight, really. And, and that's the problem. I mean, you, you look, they got the original cast back... You know, it's not a bad storyline. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. Yeah, hearing that they they, they had the the um the seeds were there. Yeah, but they just they just had to cut corners everywhere. Yeah. I mean, Milton Keynes, you know, doubling for New York. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't like, actually. I don't get how they how can you double Milton Keynes as New York? It's not <laughs> no, like it's this no. huge metropolis, is no. it? Um, and then also uh, the uh, special effects as yeah. well. They 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 what they did is they. They duplicated scenes so they could cut down on the special effects and stuff. And, and actually, Mark Pillow, who made Nuclear Man, he never made another film again. Oh, wow. He walked Jesus. away from the industry. He had such a bad experience, experience with, with that, yeah. yeah. And like I say, Cannon went out of business. Um, but I think they started up again. And oh, wow. it's, it's one of those companies that, that constantly keep, go on, coming yeah, out, yeah. keep on going out of business and then they start up again in some form. <laughs> So yeah, it's probably that is that is a film that I mean killed the franchise really. Um I know we've discussed before about, you know, uh, Superman lives and, and uh, the yeah, you know, the attempts to remake to make a super a fifth Superman film. And I think it was twenty six years, wasn't it, between or was it sixteen years maybe between two and six Superman yeah. Returns came out. So, so yeah. Yeah, sixteen years. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, 19 years. Yeah. So it another 19 years for them really to shake off. Yeah. Who made the Superman? Was it Cannon who made the Superman Matars? No, I think that was... Um, was it Warner Brothers? Yeah, it might have been. I think they owned the rights then. Yeah. Lucky once, that's a good film. Wow. Well, what it was, when Cannon Films went out of business, uh, the rights reverted back to the Salkins, but they, they actually got out of the film business because they'd produced... It was Christopher Columbus, the discovery, and then they lost so much money on that that they decided to cut their losses and, and sell it get back out. To... Yeah, and, and they sold it, I think, sold it back to Warner Brothers. And we all know what Warner Brothers are like. Yeah, so. yeah. Terrible with it, yeah. so. Right. Well, like I said, yeah, it did have a, it did have a, um, it seemed like it had some sort of uh, promise. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just a shame, once again, the execution 
cut the cut of budget, or whatever. I mean, I'd, I'd had the thirty million, then they probably could have done a decent job. But it's just when it gets cut, particularly when you start, you know, just before you start filming, or actually during filming, sometimes, you know, yeah, you can't come back from that. Just that happens you? with films sometimes. Yeah. It? Right, my next film is Troll Two. And have you ever heard of this? Um, it is on many people's I list of the worst film ever made. I can't remember because there was... I, I get confused between the Leprechaun movies and, and the Troll movies, so I can't say yeah, this, if this, I've actually seen it. This um, isn't Troll. This isn't Leprechaun. Yeah. This is, but I get mixed up. Okay. So, right. I may have seen it. Um, but again, I may have just blanked it out. <laughs> Strapping for this. Um, Troll 2 was a 1990 horror film yeah. directed by Claudio Fagrasso, whoever the hell that is, under the pseudonym Drake Floyd and starring Michael Stevenson, George Hardy, Margot Prey, Connie McFarland, Deborah Reed and Jason Wright. The plot concerns a family pursued by vegetarian goblins who seek to mutate them into plants so that they can be eaten. It's a really, really scary, scary plot there, isn't it? Uh, Troll 2 was made on a budget of $65,000. It's so bad that there's no de definitive amount that it made. Not even estimates. So oh. people don't even know how much it made. First off, this film literally has the worst acting of a film I've ever seen. This is because the entire cast went to a casting call hoping to be extras and ended up in lead roles. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I might try that. <laughs> do you know you went, what was it, Harry Potter? You, yeah. were, you were granddad went, you could No, it was... Um, Heights Caribbean one. It was Les Miserables. Okay. So... It's obviously on a much bigger scale. It's like you going to be an extra yeah. and then you being cast in Hugh Jackman's role or whatever. Oh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> this film's genre is a horror. I can't think of anything less scary than vegetarian goblins who turn people into plants so that they can eat them. Another reason why this film is horrible is because the director, Claudio Hugasso, barely speaks any English. He worked with an American production. Yeah, I don't need to go into detail why this was a problem. He's an Italian, so... The script ultimately doomed this film. It was hokey, amateur, and all over the place. And having watched parts of this film, I actually felt second-hand embarrassment. I don't know what was going through Fugasso's head. In my opinion, not even a production of Oscar winners could make this script work. Honestly, I think that any average Joe could whip up a script ten times better than Troll 2. And it, like I said, it is that bad. Um, <laughs> this is just so ridiculous. There's a lot of false advertising and a misleading title. There were no trolls in the movie. Instead, it features the nil, the nil bogs, and they're like these little goblin things, and which are simply well, nil bog is goblin, goblin spelled backwards. backwards. So really creative there. <laughs> to rub salt on the wound, the movie's original title was going to be Goblin, but as mentioned above, United States distributors were skeptical about the film's ability to succeed as an indie film and renamed it to what it is now. It has no connection to the to the original movie. Um, I don't know how this got, even got on. Because the, the first one's considered one of the worst movies of all time as well. Yeah. Um, like I said, well, the, the acting is awful. That's what you get with people not acting. Yeah. Uh, really bad special effects. Like I said, 65,000. I don't know how you can even make a movie on that much. Like, yeah. You know, um, <laughs> the nil bogs are terrible looking. They are absolutely, it's like what you'd get in a, like a party city sort of yeah. um, Halloween costume yeah. still, you know. The plot is barely followed at all if there is a plot. Um, there's unintentionally hilarious dialogue, such as when Arnold sees a girl getting eaten by the nilbogs, he screams. And this is one of the most famous lines. They're eating her, then they're going to eat me. 
oh my god, in an overly dramatic and forced way to make it even funnier. A fly appears on his forehead between shots for no reason. It even became a meme. And uh, Joe, actually, it's quite an inside joke between me, us lot, because yeah, we always say that, yeah, say that that's yeah. where it's from. Um, the marketing gimmick about it being as a sequel of a movie whose craze had nothing to do with this one is somewhat immoral and stupid. Credence, the antagonist, is portrayed so badly in this film by both acting and character that it makes the other actors look incredibly sleepy that they don't even notice or act suspicious of her. Because it's like this, um, uh, I don't know how to explain it. It looks like the, um, uh, what do you call it? Sigourney Weaver's character in Ghost by Keith. Uh, yeah, yeah, doing the, um, yeah, no, no, you mean. When she's yeah. in a, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Looks like that. Oh, Zoo? No, not Zoo. Something like, something like that. Keymaster. Yeah, that's it, yeah. yeah. Um, the death scenes are either lame off screen or never revealed. So, like, <laughs> what's the point <laughs> of that? Probably because they don't have enough money. Yeah. Um, Tons of plot and logic holes, like how about the d- nil bogs of vegetarians? Why would they need to turn humans into vegetables to survive when they can simply eat regular vegetables? <laughs> they can find forests and gardens. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Horrible ending, that is the biggest plot hole of the film, and it's a cliffhanger. Most of the main characters are like about and idiotic, especially Joshua's mother and sister. And once again, it's a cliffhanger to a film. Yeah. Actually, bear <clears> with me for a second. Believe it or not, the Trolls 2 cliffhanger was... It was right to leave a cliffhanger because there's a Trolls 3. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I'm not even going to bother going uh, on about that. But, yeah, I mean, from what I've said, you can tell it's, it's easily one of the worst films ever made. Yeah. And it's one of those ones where I can't believe that a... Because he was actually quite... Um, the director, he was actually quite um, esteemed in Italy. Because yeah. I know that they have a good director culture over there in Italy. Yeah. And he... He was more of a shock horror sort of guy. Yeah. And then, obviously, this is somewhat totally different from that. And, yeah, I mean, hey, I believe it or not, I actually, like I said, I've only seen sn- snippets. I've seen quite a bit of it, but I've only seen snippets. But I want to watch this movie fully just to see how bad it is. Yeah. And because I, I can tell you, like, just from that, you're going to have a good time with it, aren't you? Just to love well, it. it might be. It might be just so good it's bad. Yeah. So it's worth just watching. <laughs> so, yeah. If you find it, try watching. Yeah. But I've never seen it advertised <laughs> or anything, but it's out there. So, if you ever find it, you're lucky. So, oh, yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> it's all good. So, what was, what was it? Um, we're eating her. Then they're going to eat me. me. Oh, my God. And it's literally that. And it's the God lasts about 10 seconds. <laughs> it's so bad. But like I said, it created a meme in itself. So. Oh. <laughs> for that it's funny. <laughs> okay so my next film you've probably never heard of it it's called Ishtar no I've never um, heard of it 1987 it was directed by Elaine May um, which is unusual for that time for a, a female yeah. um, director yeah um, the budget was 51 million and it made 14.4 million at the box office now if I tell you who was in it you'd be very very surprised Dustin Hoffman Oh, Warren shit. Beatty. Oh, shit. They star as a pair of incredibly untalented American songwriters who travel to a booking in Morocco and stumble into a four-party Cold War standoff. <laughs> Jesus. Right. So, that escalated. Yeah. What went wrong? Okay. <laughs> the film's problems really stem from it's just being heinously miscast. Yeah. Uh, Beatty and Hoffman. 
Ellen uh, May was, I think, was a scriptwriter, and she contributed some uncredited rewrites for Beatty's Oscar-nominated Reds script, and did the same for Tootsie. Mm. So they kind of felt they owed her. Okay, yeah. Um, it was supposed to be a variant on the Road Two films with you know Big Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, set in the Middle East. Um, her idea would feature Beatty and, and co-star as a mediocre singer-songwriter duo who would go to Morocco and get caught in the crossfire between the Central Intelligence Agency and a local left-wing guerrilla group. She thought it would be funny to cast Beatty against type as the, the hope part, you know, the bumbler of the duo, while the co-star, possibly Dustin Hoffman, would play the self-assured ladies' man that Crosby usually portrayed. So it's kind of switching characters. So, you know, Hoffman, who usually plays neurotic characters, would be the, yeah. the self-assured ladies' man. Um, Hoffman <laughs> initially turned it down due to misgivings. Doesn't say what the misgivings okay, they were, yeah. but he's finally persuaded by Beatty's assurances that he would provide May with the room she needed to work. So when May finished the script, Beatty, Hoffman, and some other friends, including Charles Grodin, had a meeting and read through, had a read through at Beatty's house, and all present agreed that the script needed work, but it was funny and could be a hit. Beatty took it to Columbia Pictures, who, while hesitant, did not want it to be a hit from another company, so greenlit it. So, once again, they're kind yeah. of forced. Yeah, it's like, it, you know, it's we're not really sure, but we don't want him to go to another and it'd be a hit. So, yeah. you know, and you kind of think with, with Beatty and, and Hoffman in it, I know it's no guarantee, but you, you kind of think you're going to get some good performances mm-hmm. and it, it's got the potential. 100%. Yeah. They'd wanted to shoot the desert scenes in the southwestern United States in order to keep costs down and production under control, but Columbia's parent company at the time, Coca-Cola, had money in Morocco it could not repatriate, mm. so the studio relented and allowed production to take place in the real Sahara Desert. It was expected that shooting in Morocco would take 10 weeks, after which the New York scenes would be shot. Ishtar began principal photography in October 1985 amidst high political tensions in North Africa. So this is this is <laughs> a, <laughs> Israeli war plane that just bombed Palestinian PLO <laughs> headquarters in Tunisia, Tunis. And seven days later, the the Palestine sorry the Palestine Liberation Front hijacked a cruise ship. The Moroccan military was fighting guerrillas at the time as well. Um, they actually um, they. Uh, hijacked this cruise ship and I think they killed uh, one of the uh, passengers because they were Jewish. Okay, yeah. Um, so there were rumours that Palestinian terrorists might try to kidnap Dustin Hoffman. Oh, shit. And some locations had to be checked <laughs> for landmines before shooting could begin. Fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> so there were also production difficulties. The filmmakers appreciated the Moroccans' hospitality and willingness to cooperate, but there was no one in the country with experience supporting a major Hollywood film production. Requests by the producer were sometimes unfulfilled, and calls for local extras led to thousands of people showing up. Um, and this is just an example. The film's animal trainer went looking for a blue-eyed camel in the Marrakesh market and found one he considered perfect, but he chose not to buy it right away, expecting he could find others and use that knowledge to bargain with the first trader for a better price. He didn't realise that blue-eyed camels were rare and could not find another camel good enough. He returned to the first trader only to find out that he'd eaten it. (laughs) 
Um, May was very uncomfortable in the desert environment. She suffered from toothaches that she refused to have treated locally. It took extensive measures to shelter herself from the harsh sun. She feuded with others on set as well. She and cinematographer Vittorio Storaro frequently differed over camera placements since she was looking for the ideal comic effect while the cinematographer, who had little experience making comedies, sought the most ideal composition. Beatty often took Storaro's signing disputes between him and May because Beatty had actually directed Reds as well, so mm. he was an experienced director. Um, eventually, Beatty and May began quarrelling and Hoffman sometimes served as mediator claims were times when the two were not speaking to each other. The director remained aloof from the film's editing staff, taking copious notes during dailies but not but refusing to share them. As Cumbria had feared, she shot a large amount of film as well, reportedly in one instance calling for 50 takes of vultures landing next to Beatty and Hoffman. Expenses continued to grow. This was the kind of film where nobody would say, sorry, we can't afford that. When a replacement part was needed for a camera, it was sent over to Morocco with a New York-based location coordinator instead of just being shipped, out of fear it might get lost or held up at customs. The coordinator's airfare and a week's hotel stay were paid for by the production. Privately, both P.T. and May began to confess they'd made a mistake. Matters came to a head when it came time to shoot the film's climatic battle scenes. They were far outside May's background in improvisational theatre, and during a confrontation with B.T., May said, you want it done, you shoot it. Many crew members said that on any other film, the director would have been fired, but Beatty knew that if he called her bluff, he would have to finish directing the film, which would have been a major embarrassment given that his main objective in making the film was to give May the chance she had never had. So he compromised by scaling back the battle scenes. When the film returned to New York, Beatty told then-Columbia CEO Faye Vincent that May could not direct but he rejected another suggestion to fire her, citing his image as a supporter of women's rights. Vincent said he would do it, but Beatty said if he did, then he and Hoffman would leave the uncompleted film as well. He proposed instead that every scene be shot twice, his way and May's, effectively doubling the movie's cost. So, yeah, so... <coughs> they didn't have faith in the director, but rather than replace her, because they didn't want to be seen to be, uh, you know anti-women directors or whatever, yeah. they basically shot the film twice, him directing and then her directing. It's just, it's just ridiculous, yeah. isn't it? So after a month-long break, the New York scenes were shot in early 1986. Due to union work rules, Terraro's Italian crew had to be doubled by a local standby crew who were usually not needed but drew full pay for the entire shoe. It was also necessary to stop production for several days so Beatty and Hoffman could rehearse their songs. In April 1986, a month after principal photography wrapped, Vincent fired head of production Guy McElwain. His replacement was David Putnam, producer of Chariots of Fire and a long-time critic of Hollywood budgetary excesses. Now, Putnam and Hoffman and Beatty had some previous. <laughs> um, Putnam had specifically criticised um, Reds, singing out Beatty in particular for... for the, budgetary excesses, because mm. I think Reds ran over budget and over schedule. Um, he'd also publicly criticised Hoffman, because he'd produced a film called Agatha in 1979, and then Hoffman had, uh, apparently had used his star power to force rewrites, which had promoted his minor character to a lead. After quitting his producer of that film, Putnam called Hoffman the most male male malevolent person I've ever worked with. 
So due to its history, both stars, the new studio had promised to start this star's post-production, but Beatty and Hoffman felt that move was subtly intended to undermine the film by suggesting it was a failure for which he had wanted to avoid responsibilities. They worried it would hurt the film when it was released before Christmas 1986. Interpersonal difficulties for Morocco continued in post-production. May was supposed to direct actors when they looped their lines in the recording studio, but sometimes left the job to Beatty or one of the editors. The film's raw footage before editing, known as Rushes, came to 108 hours, more than three times that for typical for a comedy. Three teams of editors, one each for Beatty, Hoffman and May, worked almost continuously to produce cuts of the film to each principal's liking. Since Mikhail Wayne, whom he tried to please as a friend, was no longer in charge, Beatty eventually relented to letting May cut the film her way, partly because he detested Putnam and believed he was leaking negative information about Ishtar to the media. The costs which Putnam had believed would come under control in post-production instead continued to mount. Eventually it became clear the film would not be ready in time for Christmas. When the release date, or late spring of 1986, was announced, later than that which had been expected, stories in the media about the film's troubles increased. Industry insiders began to refer to it as the road to ruin and Warren's Gate after the expensive 1980s flop Heaven's Gate. Beatty had kept the media off the set during production and took these jabs personally. He and May began to fight more frequently in the editing room. Finally, with a new release date looming, Bert Fields, who was May and Beatty's agent, was called in to mediate between the director and stars. The agent has been described as having final cut, although he claimed that was May's. When they finished, the editors were furious as no one had gone over the complete film. So they'd finished editing the film, but no one had actually gone and watched the completed film. <laughs> and and B2 refused to show putting them the final, the final cut. So negative buzz about Ishtar and its outrageous budget was widespread in the press long before the film ever reached theatres. Described the studio suicide, implying that Putnam sandbagged the project by leaking negative anecdotes to the media because of his grudges against Beatty and Hoffman. Before release, market research led Columbia to believe the film would fail. Its head of marketing, Peter Seeley, advised the studio to minimise its losses by cutting the film's advertising budget. Instead, Columbia spent even more to promote the film, afraid of alienating Beatty and Hoffman. Ego trumps logic in Hollywood, said Seeley. So Columbia knew it was going to be a failure and you know they were advised not to spend too much money on advertising and they, they pushed it. So despite the negative press, three previews went well with BT describing one in Toronto as the best he'd ever had and in the studio considered striking more prints. The discussions ended after the opening weekend, May the 15th, 1987. Ishtar on more than a thousand screens across the country took in 4.2 million in receipts, winning the weekend being number one at the box office. However, it beat The Gate, a low-budget horror film with no stars by only $100,000. And ultimately, it grossed only 14.3 million at the North American box office against a $51 million Jesus. production budget and up to another 20 million spent on prints and marketing. So the film is estimated to have lost $40 million and is considered one of the most expensive box office flops of all time. That is the most fucked up production I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. But it's just like, you know, you think you're trying to, re, you're trying to sort of make a, a road movie like Bob Hope and Bing Crosby and, and they had real chemistry together. Mm. Um, 
and it just seems like you, you can take two actors. I mean, Hoffman recently, yeah, but not then, wasn't really known for his comedy. Uh, and even Beatty wasn't really. And they're trying to produce a comedy. They've obviously got problems in, in that, the actual filming, director, every every everything that could go wrong went wrong on yeah. that thing. Um and yeah, just just somebody nobody took control and said, No, we, we you know, let's let's keep the budget down. But I mean fifty one million back then was a huge amount yeah. of money. Uh so it's just from start to finish, it was just <laughs> yeah. cost of luck, basically. You know, you think, well, I've got these two big stars, so it's going to be successful, but it wasn't. No. And nobody nobody would say no to them, so they basically got what they wanted. So, so again, it's like you never heard of it, and it, it probably just died a death and went away. Yeah. So. Right. Um, my next film is Disaster Movie. And Disaster Movie is a 2008 American parody film written and directed by Jason Freiberg and Aaron Seltzer. It stars Matt Lantner, Vanessa Manillo, Gary G. Thang Johnson, that's an actual name, by the way, Krista Flanagan, Nicole Parker, E.K. Barinholtz, Carmen Electra, Tony Cox, and Kim Kardashian in our feature film debut. <laughs> Fucking hell. Uh, <laughs> released on August 29th, 2008 by Lionsgate, the film was a parody of the disaster film genre and popular culture. Now, disaster movie was made on a budget of $20 million. It made $35 million a total gross of $15 million. First, I think it's important to mention that Disaster Movie is the lowest rated movie on IMDb, with a rating of 1.9 out of 10. One of the main reasons why this film is so universally panned is because, let's say, it's filled with humour and jokes from another era. So it just doesn't stack up well with nowadays humour, even though I do like this film. This film would simply not be allowed to be made nowadays. It's filled with horrible acting, and cameos of celebrity lookalikes that completely ruin the pace of the, of the movie. Now, I know that pacing is the last thing that this movie was going for, but it really is a slog to get through. Awful CGI is plastered throughout. Once again, I know that this isn't a thing on the mind of the creators, but once again, it really takes us out of the film. The story is horrendous, and the film isn't invested with its world-end plotline and wants to shoehorn sketches that have nothing to do with the apocalypse, such as the dance battle scene or the high school musical sketch. This movie doesn't even follow its own premise. Judging by the title and some of its posters, one would assume that the idea of the movie is to lampoon those overblown disaster movies that Hollywood makes every once in a while, like Dante's Peak, Deep Impact, Armageddon, The Core, The Day After Tomorrow, Cloverfield of 2012, but making fun of its repetitive cliches and evoking practically every conceivable threat, but instead it relies more on spoofing popular movies of the time and making pointless pop culture references. So, like, this is made... By the same people who made all the scary movie films, um, superhero movie, uh, epic movie, date movie, yeah. and those movies actually like, spoofed that genre it was going for. So, like, scary movies yeah. spoofed the horror movies, you know. It just didn't spoof really disaster movies at all. Mm. Um, the only disaster movie mentioned is 1996's Twister with the cliche cow and tornado bit. Overall, once again, this movie can only be described as a massive clusterfuck from start to finish. <laughs> it truly is deserving of its title of the worst movie ever made. This doesn't mean that I dislike the film, though. It is weirdly entertaining and nostalgic for me personally, because like I said, I remember stumbling across this movie years ago, and I'm, I must have been about God, 10 or 11, and it's that type of like toilet humour, you know? Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it it and it's 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 hard to to criticize it in the way that you criticize a normal feature film because it's not trying to go for any like the writing's bad, but necessarily it's not trying to go for the for that like good writing. The pace is bad, but necessarily it doesn't give a shit about the pacing, whatever of a movie. But it, you, I think we we still have to. Um, you know, put it up against them because it is a film at the end yeah. of the day and there's no story to this film whatsoever. Like, um, when I tell you, literally, one minute, like, the guy, the geezer wakes up and it's her Sweet 16 party for him and then he's in um, Troy Bolton's clothes from High School Musical yeah. and he's in a, uh, he starts dancing to High School Musical music and stuff and then the next scene, they're in this, literally, there's no, like, progression. They're just in this warehouse and, um, it's a parody of Alvin and the Chipmunks, and they <laughs> they got rabies, and they start eating this woman's like back, at, and it looks like ribs, like like actual pork ribs. And then there's a scene where there's an evil kung fu panda. So it's like it's so weird. Yeah. But it's it's for me personally, I, I grew up watching this film, but I haven't watched it for years. I tried to watch it the other day, but it's, it's not on anything. But um, yeah, if you want us to see the most random movie ever, then yeah, go for it. But yeah, it's, it's in a traditional sense, it's not a good movie, but I, I, I certainly want to watch oh. it again. But yeah, that's why it's on my list. Okay, so my next one is um, it's I've seen it on probably it's near the top of every list of worst movies ever made. And that's Howard the Duck, which was a 1986 movie directed by William Hoyke. The budget was estimated to be thirty to thirty-seven million, and it made thirty-eight million at the box office. Now, this is actually considered the first big-screen Marvel live-action film. Now, they did have some made-for-TV movies in the eighties. I think the Hulk um, yeah. with Lou Ferrigno, and they did a, a Hulk with a Thor crossover as well. But these were like say made-for-TV. So the plot, okay. <laughs> This film is based on a Marvel comic book character, Howard the Duck is suddenly beamed from Duck World, a planet of intelligent ducks with arms and legs, to Earth, where he lands in <laughs> Cleveland. There he saves Rocker Beverly, played by Lee Thompson, uh, probably most known from Back, Back to the Future, future yeah, yeah. Yeah, from Thugs, and forms a friendship with her. She introduces him to Phil, played by Tim Robbins. Oh, really? Wow. Mm -hmm who works at a lab with scientist Dr. Jennings, played by Jeffrey Jones. When the Doctor attempts to return Howard to his world, Jennings instead transfers an evil spirit into his own body. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's look at what went wrong. <laughs> okay. So, it's based on a hit comic from the 70s, and it was one of the few Marvel titles that actually successfully crossed over into mainstream, and it boasted a budget of $30 million. And it was going to be powered by the might of Lucas's cutting-edge special effects team at Industrial Light and Magic. <laughs> it was set to be a surefire smash hit <laughs> until people saw it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, these days, most mainstream comic books are almost entirely focused on superheroes. Yeah. But in the 70s, it was like anything yeah, goes. Yeah, Doc. Yeah. So, for a while... You know, Howard the Duck was a legitimate counterculture phenomenon. His mix of absurdist, absurdist humour and social satire struck a nerve with people at the time. Howard became so popular that Disney sued over the similarities to Donald Duck 
and it forced him to wear trousers in all future appearances. <laughs> so, I mean, many people thought that it was a good idea for an animated film, which is what Howard was going to be. Yeah. Uh, but Universal's, again, they needed a big film for the summer of like 86. Mm. And with George Lucas doing the special effects, it figured a live-action version would look great. <laughs> Put emphasis on great yeah. there. Unfortunately, a live-action version of a classic counterculture comic that was failing rapidly out of tune with the times isn't exactly a recipe for success. And how the Duck's reputation as a massive flop is in no way surprising. The problem was it's marketed as a kids' film, a special effects-heavy, all-ages adventure from the mind of George Lucas, but it like a mess, <laughs> and everyone stayed away. The actual director, who happened to be a friend of Lucas's, named Willard, Willard Hayuk, would never direct a feature film again. Fucking hell. So it's bizarre to think that Marvel's first film, one where the lead is a talking dog, is still Marvel's most overtly sexual film. <laughs> it is, it is. Howard Reed's Play Duck magazine <laughs> goes to bite a co-worker's buttocks and in the film's most notorious scene shares a bed with his fully human love interest, Beverly. What a lovely film. So, you know, a woman in, in bed with a talking duck was mainstream viewing in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem with, with the, the film was that the character just wasn't likeable. No. Uh, the performance... He, he ran his course, basically, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. Performances were mediocre, and the special effects were poor. Um, Even for my then. Yeah. Because obviously they built it as a, you know, a fully, yeah. you know, mechanic. I think, obviously, it's a person in a suit, but... It's like they're saying that like, the mouth wasn't didn't work properly, didn't sync up with the you know, just little things like that that distract from the actual film. But mm. it just again just wasn't a good film. Um and that take I mean, I know I know I, I tend to, to rip on him, but yeah, again, another Lucas failure. Yeah. So mm. yeah. That just goes to show again, you 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 know. You can't sort of manufacture a good film if no. it's you know, if it's just not a good premise to start with. Because that's the thing they were they were once again they were banking oh they were banking on on things that are risky and you just well they're hoping like obviously the Lucas name would would, yeah. would help bring in people. It's not going to do it, though, is it? Yeah. No. no, you can't rest on your laurels. No, so. no. Right, my next film is the biggest cinematic masterpiece of all time: the Emoji Movie. <laughs> I, I can say that I haven't seen it. Really? Wow. Yeah. Well, it's like 3.0 on IMDb, so there you go. The Emoji Movie is a 2017 computer-animated science fiction comedy film based on emoji faces, smileys, and graphics using electronical messages, produced by Columbia Pictures and Sony Pictures Animation, and distributed by Sony Pictures Releasing. Directed by Tony Leonidas, who wrote it, and Eric Siegel and Mike White, the film stars the voices of TJ Miller, James Corden, again... <sighs> Once again, they probably had a huge buffet for that one as well. Yeah. Anna Faris, Maya Rudolph, Stephen Wright, Jennifer Coolidge, Christine, Christina Aguilera, Sofia Vergara, Sean Hayes and Patrick Stewart. In the film, Jean, a multi-expressional emoji who lives in a teenager's smartphone, sets out on a journey to become a normal meh emoji like his parents. And if you don't know, the meh emoji is the one, I think it's the one with its straight face one, you know? Yeah. Right, the Emoji Movie was made on a budget of $50 million. It made $218 million for a total gross of $168 million. There are many reasons why this film is terrible. The basic concept of having a movie based on emojis is, while really not the worst concept, 
incredibly bland and confusing. The fact that the concept has a rather botched execution doesn't exactly help. The film feels more like an advertisement for phone apps and smartphones extended into one film as it is overloaded with product placements from real-life phone apps including Spotify, WeChat, Facebook, Candy Crush, YouTube, Instagram and Just Dance Now. It also tries to leech off the smartphone popular culture at the time. This film is filled with poor attempts at humour which often take forever to finish with many of them coming across as either poorly written, immature, childish or unfunny. One example of this is one scene where high five emoji throws up a corn a, a corn candy before a, a candy corn before putting it back into his mouth and later throwing it up again because that's what you want to see isn't it this that, that's that's the level of humor yes it is okay. yes. um this film took the piss with false advertising despite the heavy market i can't believe this despite the heavy marketing of poop on the posters and in the trailers <laughs> this character voiced by patrick stewart only gets a few lines and barely even gets to have an important role in the movie whatsoever. I mean, the fact that we barely get to see the poop emoji in action, voiced by Patrick Patrick right, Stewart. That is worth watching it. Yeah, exactly. Um, just for that. Poop emoji by Patrick Stewart. <laughs> the craze deserve jail time yeah. for that, as far as I'm concerned. Because <laughs> he, he was like the big one to make people go in, you know. Yeah. Overall, this movie really has no identity, and it seems like the people behind it didn't really care about the film, just the money they could make from it, and also poop as well. So there we go. Can't believe Hello, that. I am poop. <laughs> <laughs> see, I would, I would pay to see that. Actually, I would. It's just, mate, if they bring out the poop emoji movie, I'd see that by <laughs> Padgett's Joe. But the fact that it's just uh, a poop emoji with a resonating voice, but yeah, it's just it. Uh, it just seems a bizarre concept. To, it really is to base a film on emojis. Because um, basically, there's like a there's like a scene, and they're all in this like um. Uh, it's, it's like Monsters Inc as they're all in this workspace yeah. and they go out for their day of work to be an, an emoji in someone's phone you see and it just it's such a weird like I said um, it's the emoji movie it's a one concept thing like okay they're emojis where'd you go with that you yeah. know so but yeah now we, we need more poop in that I wish people would have um, stepped up and signed a petition or whatever to get poop in it but you know yeah but yeah that's the reason why it's on my list so okay <clears throat> I may just give it a watch just for poop, poop Patrick Stewart <laughs> but we're adults by the way so. <laughs> alright so my last film um, it's going to be a short one this one um, it's Mac and Me from 1988 uh, directed by Stuart Raffel it was budget was 13 million and the box office was 6.4 million <laughs> Jesus um, the plot is a young ex extraterrestrial separated from its family and stranded on Earth finds friendship with a boy in a wheelchair. Hmm, what, what, hmm. Does that sound like? <laughs> <laughs> what went wrong? Okay. Producer RJ Lewis, he was well-intentioned. He wanted to do something special for the kids. <laughs> Lewis was riding high after his movie, The Karate Kid, was the fifth highest-grossing movie of 1984 and spawned a sequel two years later. But now the producer wanted to give back specifically in a way to benefit people with disabilities and charities close to his heart. So he'd had good pedigree. Yeah. Karate Kid, massive film. Yeah. And I think, you know, his intentions were, were in the right place, but it just didn't work out the way I think sometimes, he intended. Sometimes they just don't yeah. do they? Mac and Me is a blatant reworking of E.T. starring Jade Calgary as Eric, a 12-year-old boy with spina bifida and a rubber alien puppet as his best bud, Mac. So by the 
mid-80s, Ronald McDonald was the world's most famous person. E.T. was close second after hauling in $435 million at the U.S. box office. Lewis happened to work on a McDonald's campaigns during his pre-Hollywood advertising years and remained close to Ronald McDonald House charities and he saw an opportunity. He said it was, up, it was time for another generation to have its E.T., Lewis said. So I came up with Mac and his family. Mac, Lewis insists, stands for Mysterious Alien Creature. The connection to his restaurant collaborator is coincidence. Is it though, really? <laughs> so Lewis spent three years bargaining for the movie and television rights to the McDonald's brand. Not only could there be a cardboard Mac in every McDonald's advertising the theatrical run, then pushing video cassettes, when the time came, when the movie's profits would benefit the Ronald McDonald Children's Charities. Now, McDonald's didn't directly fund Mac and me. According to Lewis, during his hustle to obtain the restaurant's rights, Lewis met Jim Williams. He was the president and CEO of Golden State Foods, the food processor and distributor that supplied meat, ketchup, lettuce, onions and the secret Big Mac sauce for McDonald's franchises around the country. McDonald's was Golden State Farm, sorry, Golden State Foods' sole client, and when Lewis pitched Williams on Mac and me, he saw an opportunity to give back. With money secured, Lewis started the easy part, replicating the success of E.T. <laughs> easy feat, then. <though. clears throat> so Stuart Raffer was brought in to direct and had experience with low-budget movies, finding success in the early 80s with the Ice Pirates, which was kind of like a Star Wars rip-off, mm. and the Philadelphia Experiment. The well-intentioned charity hook of Mac and Me appealed to the director, so he signed on. Raffle claims that when Lewis signed him to make Mac and Me, there was still wasn't a script. There was a crew on standby ready to shoot something, which was costing them tens of thousands of dollars a week to maintain. So they'd already got a crew together, but no script. They weren't shooting, and they were still paying them, yeah. <clears throat> so Raffle was doing the pre-production on the picture as well as writing the script on the weekend. McDonald's only offered a few notes on the script, so it needed to live up to the McDonald's brand, dress code, food code, fun image, but the intention was to promote the house charities, not the hamburgers. There was just one caveat McDonald's insisted upon. Ronald McDonald shouldn't appear on screen. Except he did. <laughs> and in an unusual what? way. Wait, so <laughs> McDonald's didn't want him no. and it went against their wishes? Yeah. Jesus. So Mac and Me basically features 99 minutes of family squabbling over what to do with an alien. Harmless action sequences involving two nefarious FBI agents and remind us that hugs, smiles, and friendship are foundation of positive living. But anyone watching the movie in 1988 could tell you that the only two scenes would stand the test of time. After catching Mac rummaging through his new home, Eric tries to catch him and winds up ramping off a cliff in his wheelchair. Before he can drown in the lake below, Mac dives in and saves the day. Now, modern uh, like viewers now would make, that's that's been made famous by Paul Rudd. Um, as a prank on the Conan O'Brien okay, show. Yeah. So that scene, apparently, yeah, um, it's an ongoing prank between Paul Rudd and Conan oh, O'Brien. And then there's a dance sequence, <laughs> a four-and-a-half-minute choreographed wonder that starts in the McDonald's parking lot before erupting in the middle of the restaurant. Mac, dressed in a bear costume, breakdances on the counter. <laughs> <laughs> I need to see this film. As cashiers provide backup, football players, nine-year-olds, and Ronald McDonald dance their hearts out. <laughs> so, you know, why is this scene in the movie? It was so they could, again, release a soundtrack album. Yeah. So they wanted to cash in on that. Um, 
Lewis says he had offers from big studios like Paramount and MGM after test audiences rated the movie more favourably than Tootsie. <laughs> yeah, one of the most Hello. successful comedies of all mm. time. But the film ended up at Orion Pictures, known for everything from Amadeus to Back to School. Uh, but there was a silent stakeholder battle going on between billionaire John Klug and media mogul Summer, Sumner Redstone, which left Orion sort of a bit wayward. Yeah. And according to Lewis, Mac and me suffered collateral damage. So like, there was an ongoing battle over ownership of the studio and, and you know, sort of the film suffered from that. The movie only made six million in two weeks. But it, I mean, it was up against Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Big, oh, yeah. and Die Hard. Oh, wow. Um, the movie's explicit appeal to disabled people didn't find much love from audiences or critics. The New York Times called Mac and Me a shameless clone with residual charm that may be mildly amusing to children too impatient to wait for the E.T. video. <laughs> That's a burn, that, yeah. isn't it? Uh, McDonald's did not really get behind Mac and Me as much as the producers expected. Commercials featuring Ronald McDonald shilling for the movie struck the wrong chord. The charity obscured by product placement. The promotional rollout conceived in the beginning were cut short thanks to bigger studios' newfound interest in cross-promotion. So this was like the first time that um, there'd been cross-promotion between a, f a film and like a, another company. Okay, yeah. Um, and other studios got wind of this, and the, so they offered like more money to McDonald's to have, so it got, got again, that, that sort of advertising cross-promotion. started out. Yeah. Mm. And people just said, you know, we've we've seen it done so much better by Spielberg. Obviously, it doesn't help either. And a lot of people felt it was just it was just a cheap ninety minute commercial for McDonald's, Coca Cola, and Skittles. And it's even um, um, and even Sears because they actually had a um, a McDonald's for kids range of clothing, which they all wear oh, in the film. So, Jesus you know, he's, he's saying it's not an advertise, it's not subliminal advertising or product placement, but it's everywhere yeah, in the film. That's bollocks, isn't you it? You know, um, Lewis actually maintains there's genuine interest in Mac and me because the video sales made the movie profitable for Orion, and he thinks that Mac would connect with today's kids. So we may see a Mac and me too. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> but... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's that's. Um, that's a film that probably should never have been made because you know it's it's a blatant rip off of ET. Yeah. Um. It's it's just there to sell. I mean, his maybe his intentions were were honourable, but then when other people get involved, you know, it's it's obviously you know McDonald's are using it to to advertise their products. Um, his idea of fe featuring a you know a disabled uh, person in a prominent, um film or a prominent uh, role in the film backfired on him as well yeah I mean, he, they just said it was a, a cheap a cheap way to try and, and get prom promotion and um appeal to you know a, a different, a different, different audience different yeah. demographic so yeah um you've probably never seen the film i've never um, seen it i actually don't remember seeing it uh, and I'm, i don't actually plan on seeing it again. <laughs> I'm just going to go have a Big Mac. McDonald's have done their job then. Okay. Um, my last film is Halloween Resurrection. Um, which one is, which, which number is that? It's the eighth installment. Eighth installment, okay. Halloween Resurrection is a 2002 American slasher film directed by Rich Rosenthal who also directed Halloween 2 in 1981. Larry Brand and Sean Hood divides the screenplay. 
The film was a direct sequel to Halloween H2O and it stars Buster Rhymes, which is not good. Bianca Kajlik, who the fuck that is, Thomas Ian Nicholas. Who's got Buster Rhymes? Buster Rhymes is the main character. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> Go on. I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Ryan Merriman, Sean Patrick Thomas, Tyra Banks, and Jamie Lee Curtis, with Brad Laurie as the primary villain, Michael Myers. Like I said, the eighth installment in the Halloween franchise, and it follows Michael Myers continuing his murderous rampage in his hometown of Haddonfield when his old derelict childhood home is used for a live internet horror show. So it's basically, the whole film is is set inside his house, and they they each have, there's like these contestants on a, on a game show, right. and they each have these like um, GoPro things, yeah. and it gets, it's, it's like an internet show, uh-huh. and obviously Michael comes back and he starts killing them all, so that's basically the premise oh, of the film. Nice. Um, Halloween Rection... Uh, I said Halloween Erection. That would have been in some sort of film, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, different, different type of genre. That, that, would have, that would have made some money, wouldn't it? Uh, it was made on a budget of $15 million. It made $38 million for a total gross of $23 million. Once again... That's not a bad return for a, for a film, Michael Myers makes money, you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, first off, the cast in this film was terrible. Buster Rhymes was cast in an era in which every movie seemed to have a rapper in the film. Yeah. They should just stick to rapping, in my opinion. Uh, the movie makes a mockery of Michael Myers. This film was able to insult the character and the whole franchise in its one hour, 34 minute runtime. Uh, this movie kills off Laurie Strode. She had two previous films worth of character development because uh, obviously H2O was the one previous to this and H2O disregarded I, everything. I saw H2O. It's a good film. It's yeah. a good one. Yeah. It disregarded everything from two onwards. So yeah. she had all that, all that character development from, from then. Um, in films that are highly regarded, this film kills her off within the first 10 minutes. This film insults another of the main franchise's so, main characters. Is this another Highlander 2 retcon in future films? I'll get to that. <laughs> All right, sorry. sorry I didn't. Uh, it also seems quite pointless, only, added, only to add something interesting into the film. Killing off Laurie also messes up the plot of the previous film to the point in which they have a whole uh, five-minute scene in which they explain how Michael was in fact alive and wasn't killed in the previous film. So in the previous one, obviously, spoilers, um, Laurie kills Michael by beheading him. It's a brilliant scene, which should have ended the franchise. <laughs> how, <laughs> how can you come back from being beheaded? <laughs> well, he managed to I, mean, if, if, I know if you're immortal, you can, but, you know. Yeah, his head literally falls off. But um, basically, what they say is, is if I remember right, it, it's a whole scene... Start the scene is, is a whole flashback scene in which it shows Michael um, killing one of the police officers or one of the ambulance drivers and then placing his body in his suit and his mask and then Michael driving away and the whole last the whole last scene would be Michael in the, in H2O would be Michael would not be Michael it'd be but that right, plans, why would why would the ambulance driver try and kill Laurie because he's, he's in the whole yeah, last scene isn't yeah, it yeah so yeah. it's just this is bollocks yeah. but um like I said it this movie is responsible for killing the original set of five of films for five years it caused Rob Zombie to reboot the whole franchise instead of adding to the law that this this film created and even though they're shit films anyway yeah. they this film has awful cinematography and editing that, f- that makes it feel like more like a director movie, um, director video movie than a theatrical film. 
Michael Myers' mask is one of the ugliest in the series, and it looks like something you find in Poundland, like literally. <laughs> this once again makes a mockery of the character. Uh, overall, this is a movie that should have never been made. It jumped on the found footage bandwagon, and it is painful to watch in general. Um, there's also a famous scene at the end, because um, obviously in spoilers, Buster Rhymes survives, and um, he, obviously it was just, he was basically put in there just like a familiar face, you know, and he, uh, how he dies, how Michael dies, is it's on fire, because Buster Rhymes was presumed dead, because he, he's the guy that hosts the thing, yeah. and he dresses up as Michael, and then the real Michael, he's like, who the, who the fuck are you, you know? Yeah. And um, he knows karate in this film. And he <laughs> fights... He does. <laughs> in, the, in the final scene, he fights uh, Michael and he, he, he does like briefly... <laughs> and uh, like I said, he, 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 Michael basically jobs out to Buster Rhymes. And the, uh, the scene in which kills Michael is... Uh, Buster Rhymes in the end they have this huge fight scene like literally fist fighting and whatever and then Buster Rhymes just gets up and he goes trick or treat motherfucker and he pushes him he like punches him into this fire and it blows him up and stuff and I just think that is just the most corny thing yeah. and then once again what I fucking hate about movies is it kills Michael but then there's a scene afterwards in which he he's in the morgue and his eye opens again when he's just obviously <laughs> being killed by an electrical fire yeah. so they tried to set up a new one, but obviously they they didn't um, go with it. But yeah, that's that's actually to be fair, I'm gonna get some hate. I actually like this film. I actually think it's quite entertaining because I'm a sucker for one um, one set movies, yeah. and it really is set in the house, and it's quite a cool premise. And you get to see this is the thing with slasher movies. Like they're not the greatest films, but when there's such a bad cast, you get to see the killer kill yeah. them, and it's yeah, it's satisfying as hell. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'd actually urge people to watch yeah. it. It's quite a good film. So, yeah. yes, things I've like, obviously seen the first two, and then I've, I think I kind of dipped in and out yeah. along the series. I remember going to see H two O in cinemas. I may, I may have seen Season of the Witch. Okay, yeah, yeah. as well. Um, the one that doesn't even have Michael in. Yeah. Um, I like I said once again. I, I used to be a huge slasher fan. I've yeah. seen every single one, and Resurrection really isn't the worst. Yeah. As in terms of for me personally. But I can see, in a traditional sense, why it is the worst film of them all. But it's it's um, it's funny as hell. So cool. It's been a long one today. It has, it? yeah, and it's actually been quite enjoyable. Yeah, it has, yeah. <laughs> so all that's left to say is thanks for joining us. If if you enjoyed today's podcast, join us next week, um, same time, same place. Uh, we are on uh, social media with more content. So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. TikTok. TikTok. Uh, we have a website, uh, thefilmgeezers.com, where we do uh, reviews. Um, so, again, thanks for joining us, and uh, goodbye. Thank you. Bye.